0: You can't believe how good it feels to know that you're back for the third episode of the You and Lewis podcast, Right Turns Project. I think you're really going to love this one. How does someone go from being a high school football player and troublemaker, from a traditional Italian Roman Catholic family in the steel town of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, to discovering Buddhism in, of all places, Brisbane, Australia? Well, my guest this week is Aaron Amadio. Follow along as he takes us on his journey of adventure and self-exploration and finally ends up quitting his dream job to start the path to become a veterinarian. His compassionate nature shines through in this interview as he shares stories of dog whispering, teaching at-risk youth in the wilderness, and his daily focus to alleviate the suffering of animals. Although this is my longest podcast to date, you'll want to listen to the very end. Aaron's velvety voice makes every minute enjoyable. If you have any questions for Aaron or would like to see him come back for another interview, please email me through the contact page on my website and let me know for now just relax and settle in for another incredible story of transformation i kind of want to start much much earlier in uh in your whole existence on the planet let's go back (laughs) yeah um your family seems like a really amazing group of people.
1: It's pretty wild. Uh, yeah, the more I've seen other families, because you, your own family just seems normal, right? That's your family. So the more I've seen other families, I've that mine is different. And I mean, everyone's is different, but yeah, it's a pretty intense.
0: Well, how do you think your family's different from other families? Uh,
1: I mean, there's six of us, which is by modern day standards, not common at all. So I'm I'm six. Sorry, I'm I'm the oldest of six kids.
0: Oh, you are the oldest. Yes,
1: yeah. So there's six children, and um, my mother and father both come from large families. My father is one of seven or eight. I can I could count it, but I don't recall. But my mother is one of fourteen. So it's my extended family alone. I always make jokes when I meet new people. I tell them, "Oh, you, you seem nice, but..." Uh, you're not going to make the wedding list, so don't don't get too comfortable here. So it's 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 a huge family, and it's very close. A lot of families uh, struggle, especially uh, with marriages uh, breaking up and a lot of drama in that. And my family has drama like any other one does, but not not to the extent of uh, of some that I've seen. So it's it's pretty unique in that way.
0: So. Tell me if I get this right. Mm-hmm. Your dad's name is Dave. Yeah. Your mom is Leslie. Yes. And then Justin. Justin. Jason. Yeah. Anthony. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie. Stephanie. And Jacqueline. Yes, those are my siblings and, and you. my parents. Yeah. So what's the rank?
1: What's the rank? The so order. Uh, it's me, and then Anthony, and then Jason, then Steph, then Justin, and then Jacqueline.
0: And you guys seem like a pretty gregarious bunch.
1: We yeah we we are uh, we are yeah we're um, I guess we've always been that way. Again, going back, that's what you see as normal, very extroverted family. Yeah, um, and it has been actually until very recently that I was I was probably would have been pointed by the whole family as being they still might point to me as being the most gregarious, but my introverted tendencies have started to. Um, grow much stronger and it's just it's like you're trying to keep something plugged like a pipe and it's just been building up and all that pressure is pushed out now every just and recently the life decisions I've made have shown that like that that need to just disappear for a while has come out
0: it's interesting you should say like your introverted tendencies mm-hmm. are kind of trying to get out mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's yeah. kind of a nice juxtap- juxtaposition juxtaposition yeah. of kind of concept of what you know introvert you think going in right? yeah exactly
1: yeah i guess for me as an extrovert mainly everything kind of goes out <laughs> even my introversion
0: so you kind of see that like there's a balance like totally you see there's a balance there or do you kind of feel like you've up that introvert
1: part of you so recently i've realized that's what it is and i need to engage in that because if i don't there's always something there that's just saying, "Hey, I need uh, I need something. I need something from you. So if I don't, if I don't give myself that time, it, it's it builds as like an agitation, like a constant, um, just grating at me. So if I don't get that away and just disappear, and I found it, I can even just close my bedroom door and just not talk to anyone for like a couple hours, and that's
0: that's fine. That's what I need. So you see that now, but now looking back, like mm-hmm. when you were a kid could you see how maybe you didn't, you didn't give that part of you enough attention?
1: I, looking back, I don't have a memory of it needing um, to be fed as much. And I say fed because um, that's how I kind of see this balance between us. And there's a really cool story. Uh, It's an, it's an Aboriginal story um, about the two wolves. Do you know the two wolves story? No. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, It's kind of how I I visualize all of us in this balance we try to maintain in the world. Um, And it's with a young boy and he's speaking with his grandfather. The grandfather explains to him um, that there is a battle going on inside of him. And it's a battle between two wolves. And one wolf represents all of the positive energies. It's love, kindness, compassion, empathy, forgiveness. And the other wolf is all of the negative style and destructive energies. Like anger, wrath, greed, um, something like what you would consider the seven deadly sins in Christianity, all of those things are represented by the other wolf. And he continues to tell this story to his grandson, and he says, and this battle is going on inside of me every day and in every other human being in the entire world. And then little boy is quiet for a second, and then he looks up at his grandfather, quite distressed, and he says, well, grandfather, which wolf wins? And the grandfather says to the little boy, he says, the one you feed the most. Mm. So it's, it's a really, for me, it's one of my favorite myth type stories out there. Um, and when, that's why, when I say feed, I really do mean like, that's the energy I'm feeding to that part of my wolf, I guess, mm-hmm. my inner wolf.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. it, it. it does also i think every culture kind of has that concept too if you think in asia the um well typically people say yin yang
1: yeah exactly
0: yin yang so that kind of inter interplay of um dark and light Mm -hmm. and and, uh negative and positive and and it's kind of interesting because from the uh the um, asian concept there's no bad or good in mm-hmm. either one of those sides. They're just constantly playing at, playing at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so being the oldest mm-hmm. growing up, must have been a, a lot of responsibility. Were you given like a lot more responsibility than the other siblings?
1: Uh, I mean, I guess so. Again, when, when you're there, you don't realize it. It's only on looking back and reflection. You see how things were different. The way it was for us was, as the oldest of six, um, as most oldest children are, you're the trailblazer, right? Some parents joke and they say you're you're the experiment, you're the you're the child we tested things oh, yeah. on, and yeah. My oldest is like that yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, we will not do that with the other ones. So, um, and being the oldest of six in that family, we had very very strong values that were imposed on us um, constantly when. I was younger. My first job, I remember, I went with my father to someone he had some connection with in the city, and we lied about my age to get me my first job. So I was working younger than you were supposed to be. How um, old were you? I forget. I was maybe fourteen.
0: You would have had to be like sixteen. Yeah, something or, like that. Yeah. Fourteen, or, or
1: and I was, and I guess he justified it being like, oh, you're an early, you're an early baby, January. It's no, it's no big deal. And what deal. was the first job? I was a rink rat, a rink attendant at um, at the facility up in. Sault Ste. the whatnot. Uh, it was like a pool and brink combo there. A really nice facility, um, but it was an awful job, especially as like a 14, 15 year old kid. It was just the worst job. Yeah. Yeah. You just had to clean up the locker rooms and it always smelled awful.
0: Ugh. Yeah. Well, you kind of, um, your family's Italian Irish, right?
1: Uh, Italian mutt. We have Irish in us. Okay. My mother's side, the Cassidy side, is. Uh, if you took like a, a genetic testing on us, we would hit everything. It would just be like right. buckshot on a map. Yeah, kind of like me. Yeah. So yeah, Italian on my father's side, and then yeah, just the full mut on my mother's side.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of like that, that uh, kind of maybe familial um, inheritance of those kind of values, right? Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah, for were sure.
0: You, w- were your parents quite? Um, like, were they really church-going people? They by still religious? are. Yeah,
1: my family still is um, very religious, um, and I'm not. And it's always a really heated Christmas time debate we always have. Right. Um, because I, for me, too, I don't hide uh, my beliefs from them. It doesn't make sense to me to do that. I don't want to lie to them. Well, I want course. them to know what I believe. Um, my cousins, my younger cousins, most of them are younger than I am as well struggle with their own faiths and their beliefs because they don't believe the same things their parents do, but they can't tell them that and they often ask me again at Christmas time like how, like how do you do it and I just tell them I said, they're your parents man they're gonna they're gonna love you mm-hmm. but just tell them like just tell them and they and a lot of them can't like none of them and they they always bug me especially my siblings, they call me the bad son because I don't go to church with my parents <laughs> so
0: yeah <laughs> so holidays yeah in uh in chinese they have a word for um uh like around holidays and stuff mm-hmm. especially with big families or big groups of people it's called real now really now means like hot noisy oh yeah so your your family time must have been like it is. hot noisy yeah <laughs> big time
1: big time yeah it uh especially I, I said with my mother's side her being one of 14 when we were growing up we used to get the church hall because again my grandparents were very much are still as much as they can be involved with the church so they would rent the church hall and it was just this massive like school style gymnasium with a kitchen on it and they would just jam all of us in there like 50 60 of us because that's how many there were i think we're up over 70 80 now just on that side yeah wow yeah that's like first cousin's that's like aunts and uncles, first cousins, and now the children of those first cousins. So, that's not even extended beyond that. That's those that's are all, crazy. Yeah, first relations just through there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, thought
0: I, I thought we have, we have six in our family. Yeah. Like, including us, right? Yeah. So, um. yeah, my four kids and us, we thought we had a a, a big group of people on mm-hmm. our holidays, but that's <laughs> insane.
1: Oh, it's it, it was. It was absolute madness. Um, just... And we're all close in age, so it was just like, it's it's like a school playground. We filled like a school playground, pretty Mm -hmm. much. Just the same noises, same types of games. Madness. Absolute madness.
0: Are you closer to any one of your siblings than the other ones, do you think? That's
1: changed over time. Um, Anthony and I were always closest because we shared a room growing up. Um, Anthony now lives out west, though, so I don't see him as much. When I came back, um, well, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually, but... It's, it's gone in, in, in like a flow. It's been a flow of whichever sibling I've been around or interacted with the most. That's the one I've been closest with.
0: Is that why you went to Revelstoke in the, in the summer? Yeah, that's why I went
1: out there to visit Anthony. Yeah, he, he and his wife, um, they got married a year, a bit over a year ago now. But uh, yeah, they, they went out there and that's where he works at uh, the hospital there. He runs, um, he's a pharmacist and he runs, uh, oh, I don't want to get this wrong, he runs part of the pharmacy thing for the hospital. I, I know I said I didn't want to get it wrong, and I just said a pharmacy thing, but I don't know it, so it's all right. You're yeah. familiar with it, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure.
0: I'm sure if he listens to this, he'll ride you better. Yeah, he'll, he'll give me shit for it for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you have a nickname, I think. Mm. Bear.
1: Yeah, yeah. As long as I can remember, yeah, that's it's, just been and it's it, totally interchangeable you with know my name. Who gave name. you that? No idea. No, and you don't know why. I don't know why. No, I. I mean, I could I'm ask. pretty
0: sure you didn't have a beard when you were in no. Bed.
1: I don't think. <laughs> I don't think so. No, but uh, yeah, it's it's always been. It sounds as familiar to me as my name. So even like, when I talk about a bear, it doesn't sound the same way as when someone says bear. To me, it's they're totally, it's the same word. My yeah. name and that word. Yeah. Your parents call you that too. Yeah, siblings, cousins aunts and uncles friends at school no that one never made it school that's not a school one did no. you have a school nickname tons i've had a lot as yeah. they've gone through yeah a lot of those and those change too right with whichever life stage you're in and the people you're interacting with so yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm. and you went to st mary's college in st mary yeah that was that's the where high you school grew up, right so yeah st. Mary's? yeah
1: just we lived in a little township just outside of the Sioux. it's what it's not that far i mean it's it's funny because the Sioux is about seventy. It was seventy five when I was growing up, but I feel like it can't be more than seventy three now. It's not it's not in its boom days anymore. It's it's getting a it's a bit rough up there now.
0: I've never been up there. Can you tell me a little bit about? The sure,
1: sure. Um, so it's it's um, it's a little little town. It's a city. It's a self contained little city, um, right on the border of Michigan. So there's. Uh, a bridge that you can cross and you're in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. You have Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario Outside of the city. It's all beautiful natural Canadian shield like group of seven style area. Absolutely stunning uh, The city itself is is an industrial hub and that's what it, that's why it's even there It's right on the mouth of superior. So it's on the major shipping channel You can get through all of the ports around superior and get down through out to the ocean, right? So that's why it exists because there's no reason to have a town up there otherwise really there's nothing there's nothing there but they do steel and that's what my father worked in he was in the steel mill up there he was one of the when he finished he was a superintendent
0: and um, so were your parents originally from Sarnia?
1: my mother was your mother which is funny because my mother is from Sarnia my father is from the Sioux but my mother's mother so my grandmother is actually from the Sioux And then moved down to the southern Ontario area. So it's Mm. funny that her mother came down and then she went up. So, but yeah. And then it's, uh, so back to the rural part of Sault Ste. Marie, it's just a tiny little town. And then you've got all the standard rural stereotypes are there. I mean, you've got not much to do on the weekends. So there's mischief, all kinds of mischief up there. And um, yeah, it was, it was a great place. I, I I have no regrets about it where I grew up. I don't hate on
0: it. kind of gave you license to run wild a little bit probably. Too. Yeah,
1: it, it allowed me to get a lot of my, my teenage, uh, that testosterone, that frustration you're going through just out. It's just an open space and you can kind of get away with more up there, I think, than you can in other places. Yeah.
0: No, I can totally relate because when I was in junior high, high school, mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, New Brunswick okay we lived in the backwoods like we moved out to the country when i was i think grade six we drove cross country from bc to to new brunswick and built a log cabin like had an outhouse Had two one acre lots of land for um for like an organic garden yeah like dug our own well the whole raised a cow for milk we had a we had a like a, a calf that we would raise each year and that would be our years meet. So it was like it's pretty different from what yeah. my my peers are doing, yeah. but I can totally relate to the whole like not having to care too much about what society thinks and yeah. you can just kinda let let loose a little bit. Yeah. Now nowadays it's a little different.
1: Oh definitely. Especially with um, the way we watch and store everything, right? We've all become data points. So everything is recorded.
0: And our relationship with nature. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, I can remember as a kid, I don't know if you if you did this or not, too, mm. um, but when I was a kid, I can remember, like, going off in the morning with a pair of shorts, cut-off jean shorts and, and shoes, nothing else, and, like, go from morning until 7 at night yeah. and just, like, run through the woods and go swimming and, like, and I can remember very distinctly the first time someone said, don't go swimming in that river mm. because there's pollution. There's They're putting... They didn't say pollution, but they're putting stuff in the river and you can't swim there anymore. Yeah, I can remember very... Like, I know I can remember the place. I can see it in my head because that was the swimming hole we used to go to. Yeah, and then, then it just wasn't anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah. So did you have that kind of same similar kind of... Um, that vibe growing up did you get out in nature a lot
1: so yeah we when we grew up um, we were outside of the Sioux so Sioux St. Mary works in it. it's uh, a city and the next city closest to it is, is Sudbury or like that's the next big city and it's about three hours away so you couldn't really get there so you've got the city and then you've got a lot of smaller little groups of people and tiny little towns around the area we lived on the west side of it and um when I was growing up, we were on, the street was about a mile long. And we were one of the only three houses on our half of the street. So there wasn't many kids around where I grew up. Thankfully, there's a lot of kids in my family. Yeah, really. But we just played in our yard all the time. Yeah. Um, just run around in the bush and uh, get into mischief that way. And we used to ride our bikes everywhere. When I first started playing football, I think the reason why I was able to play some of the positions I could play was because I'd been riding my bike for so long that my legs were so strong that
0: it, it just worked out. So yeah. And now you played football at uh, St. Mary's in high school?
1: I played, yeah. We started in, so when I was younger, they didn't even have um, any organized football league before high school. And then when I was in grade seven, they started league, and my little brother Jason was actually the first one to join. And then the next summer, uh, Anthony... And I also joined. So then the three of us were playing. Uh, and that was the first year before high school. And then I played through high school and then at university as well. So yeah, I had a, a, a very intense period. of My development was going.
0: So football. whole family into sports? Like, I mean, all you kids?
1: Yeah, we were all actually pretty athletic. We were all, we all played a lot of sports. We all, some of us still play some sports, I guess. Just Stephanie now, actually. She's just signed up for women's hockey in london so she's playing on a traveling team there now she just started that but yeah my father was athletic my mother <laughs> my mother's not she uh well, yeah. maybe
0: maybe yeah. running after six kids yeah kept yeah, her in yeah,
1: shape, yeah. Right? yeah i guess so yeah she's
0: uh yeah I, I saw a photograph of your your mother and she's yeah. just like beautiful woman yeah yeah. like just radiant you know what I mean like that smile and and you can you can just feel that feel the love from her just looking at photographs of her yeah you know
1: that is a good way to describe my mother just radiant and loving very much so yeah that's that's yeah that's a good way to describe her she's she's always been just a giant heart so did did
0: she stay at home with you guys or did she she raised us yeah she raised
1: us she was a stay at home Mother, she wasn't all she did. My mother is like a saint, the amount of things she did. She's had so many different jobs
0: as well. Um, my father worked really long hours. Like when you mean she's a saint, does you mean that she... Like, did she do a lot of community service-based so, stuff? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like,
1: and I mean, she raised six kids who have all turned out to be balanced adults, right? I mean, she didn't do it by herself. Her father helped. Uh, my father, I mean, not her father. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, they together raised six children who are all doing very well for themselves and are all giving back. right? And that's, I think, a really good marker of a healthy upbringing. We all joke and tease her about how like, oh, you did this that scarred me, but not really like none of us have any serious issues. So but she did. So she also as we got a bit older, she was volunteering with the fire department out there, so. Uh, Prince Township isn't big enough to have its own fire department, so we rely on the Sioux Saint Marie Fire Department, and have a volunteer fire department out in the township that gets around quicker to the fires and does that type of stuff. So she has had a huge; she's played a huge role in developing that program there, and she's even the deputy chief in charge of the first responding uh, program there. So she goes to really. ambulance calls. So she's when someone gets hurt in the township, that's she's usually her face they see as one of the first people on the scene helping them. I and mean, she's got some stories from that stuff. I imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. So she also did babes. I don't know if you guys have babes down here. I know what babes is. Babes mm-hmm. is like people go in with puppets and talk to children about alcohol and drugs and abuse and that type of stuff. So it's like, it's with grade twos. So very young kids. And is going babes in an their, acronym uh, or it, something? It could be. I actually don't I have no idea. I never okay. asked. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so she would go in and have like heavy conversations with these children, and some of the stuff that would come out of it is just heartbreaking, right? Because that's why it's there—it's to help these young children at this stage um, talk about it.
0: In a hard knock steel town like that, is yeah, a lot of—is there a lot of that stuff?
1: I mean, it's one case of it is more than you'd ever want to hear about, but right. the amount of stories she was getting—it's—it's it's, it's tough. It's tough. And yeah, in in an industrial town like that, you get there's there's more there's rougher things, right? It's
0: it's yeah, it's not. Yeah, people are dealing with diff- yeah. different kinds of things in in different places, right? Um, and usually, if you're if you're dealing with day to day more visceral stuff, it can it can play out a little differently. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so there's there's more of it than. You know, though, I don't know, like, the rates of prevalence in other cities. Again, I don't know what normal would be. I don't know how you'd set normal. But it's higher than I would have thought.
0: But it certainly probably gave your mother a lot more insight in how... You know, it probably played into how she raised you guys too, right?
1: That was a bit later. So she, yeah, when she had all six of us, like at nightmare ages, Mm. because we're all close together in age, right? Yeah, (laughs) we're all really close together. Um, Like Anthony and I are 18 months. And then I think it's a bit of a gap. And then Jason and Stephanie are 18 months. Yeah. And then Jacqueline and Justin are a bit further again after that. But we're all very close in age.
0: What's the most trouble uh, you got into? Oh, my goodness.
1: Um, most of it they don't know about. But uh, <laughs> the, the thing I got in the most trouble for was um, one night my brother and I and some friends went out and we were egging. So just yeah. driving around throwing eggs at oh, yeah. people. And uh, uh, they found out. They found out at a church, actually. Your folks? Yeah, someone. We, I guess, we had hit someone who, it, and this is a funny small town thing. Someone recognized someone. It's it, like there's seven degrees of separation. I think in a small town, there's two. Yeah. Like everyone, sure. everyone knows everyone. So it gets back. And yeah, they came home after going to church. And I forget why I didn't have to go to church that day. They didn't, they let me not go to church. So I got to sleep in. It was a great day. And then they came back from church and just blasted me. And I was like, proper grounded for a long time like a, a month so it was that was the thing i got most in trouble for the mischief wise a lot of mischief um i had a little alias for a while the police were looking for someone they called the black hood yeah yeah, yeah that was that what was, was the
0: black hood doing
1: the same type same type of stuff terrorizing uh mischief like just Going around throwing eggs and getting in trouble and upsetting people who make a big stink, and then the police have to look into it. So. Yeah.
0: Were you ever arrested for any of that? No,
1: no. I they they I could run very fast, so it was always a thing. It was just well, you can only get in as much mischief as you can get away with. Yeah. So I always just managed to run a bit faster than the police, and I never got caught. You can't get it.
0: into trouble for something you don't get caught. That's exactly it, right?
1: Yeah. You can get into mischief, but it's not really trouble until you're caught. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Nice. <laughs> yeah, and what and so how was your? Did your dad just work really regular hours? Like, was he home a lot, or did he
1: so? Have- no, my father worked really long hours. He'd be up before we were up, usually going to work, and then he'd be home around dinner time. So he worked. His hours were very long. He um, didn't. He wasn't as a as a manager he was not on like a shift where it's like eight to eight or something and then you're home it was you go in and deal with things and then you come home when you feel like they're dealt with enough so his hours were very long yeah. but he was he was he was not absent i never felt like my father was absent while we were growing up he was
0: there just worked a lot yeah so it sounds like in general growing up you had a really wholesome family environment you know small town canada yeah um tight sibling i mean i'm sure you guys argued and stuff oh my god like and it probably drove your mom and dad yeah <laughs> yeah but um but yeah all in all it sounds like you really had like this wholesome kind of really well guided directed upbringing yeah is that accurate
1: i would say that's very
0: accurate yep. so when you finished high school did you go to university right away
1: uh, yeah so well kind of my path has always been a very odd one and I guess that's
0: why we're here having this conversation but um, when yeah I, I, I think you can tell I'm trying to paint a picture yeah yeah, right? yeah. because because like this whole uh, kind of almost picture perfect way of, of, of growing up right yeah yeah but I, at some point in your life, Things started to change a bit. Yeah. So, so after you went to university right after high school. Yeah, pretty much. So and that was uh, wilford Laurier. Yes. Yeah. So I,
1: in high school, I ended up. I was the last year or the first year of the end of OAC. So there used to be the grade, thirteen, I guess here, in Ontario, and my year in high school was the first year that I graduated from grade twelve. So they allowed. Can you kind us, of explain because. Yeah. Like
0: yeah. I. I went to high school in in New Brunswick, right? And I can remember hearing about grade 13 in Ontario. I'm thinking, why the hell would anybody want to go to another year of high school, right? Are people up there aliens? Because they're used to... When I was a kid, Ontario, especially Toronto, had this kind of like mythical status. Yeah. You know what I mean? People would go to Toronto and come back and talk about things, right? So it was kind of... And I was a little bit more removed than other people Mm because I had also like when I was a kid I lived in Vancouver I I moved around a little bit when I was a kid so I wasn't I wasn't caught up in that mythical idea Mm -hmm. as much as other kids but there was always this different kind of identity surrounding Ontario from the rest of Canada almost Um, so anyway like with grade 13 um, can you kind of explain that to people who don't yes. live in Ontario.
1: So grade 13, all it was is when you went to high school, you went for five instead of four years, and that's just the way it always was. And the 13th year was pretty much your um, like university application year. That's the credits or the courses I used to look at. So your first four years of high school didn't matter as much as long as you did well in your OAC year, they called so it. So would
0: everybody go, go to the 13th year? Or Everyone, was it yeah. just for people who are doing like college, university prep?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Like I if can't. you were
0: doing vocational stuff, would you stop at year 12 and then go off to trade school?
1: I, From what I remember, you always did your five years. And Sault Ste. Marie being a steel town and an industry town. Because we also had pulp and paper and that type of stuff up there. Um, you had um, very good hands-on type training, like you could still go to your OAC when you'd go into like shop and they had both wood and mechanic. Um, they had a little bit of electrical. So they had all of that type of stuff. You could be doing that and then go right into a college program from there. But yeah, everyone, everyone did the five years. That was just, and to say five years now, it sounds like a long time. Why would anyone want to do five years? Mm-hmm. But then that was the norm. So that was what was culturally normal up there. You went for your five years of high school. Right. Yeah, I and I can't remember if you could or if you want, if like, I don't remember if it was optional. I feel like it wasn't, but I have no memory. I mean, I'd have to look, up, look it up to see if that was the case.
0: And then you uh, went to Wilfrid Laurier for a Bachelor of Arts in History? Yeah,
1: so, oh yeah, we keep getting caught on that. So when I finished my four years, I decided to stay an extra term uh, and play football one more time. Okay. Because I was... I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was that age. Like I had an idea. I was like, well, I could be a history teacher because I had my football coach was a history teacher and he was a fantastic role model. Uh, I loved him. He would get so excited about teaching and his excitement about teaching. What was was his name? His name was uh, Marty Smith was his name. And he was a big reason why I started looking at teaching and realizing the impact you can have as an educator because it was also in high school when I, uh, I had a science teacher who was really not good. And I won't name I won't name them. I won't I don't ask mind. you to. Yeah, but they were they were horrendous, and they ended up sucking all the joy out of science for me. And um, which for me now, especially doing it, having come back to it, is really heartbreaking because I love the sciences. They're so fascinating. Being able to look at the world and understand it down to its like smallest pieces mm-hmm. is is so cool to me. So I walked away from the sciences. Because I thought I just couldn't do them. I thought I was, ah, well, I'm not smart enough to do sciences. This is dumb. I hate them. So that's when I started leaning towards the arts. So I stayed an extra semester. And the deal I had to make with my father, because my father, while we were growing up, he didn't understand an arts type path, right? For him, it was always math, sciences. He's a chemical engineer. He he knows what it has to take. Because in his world, it's, if you don't have the right education, then you're like a shift worker. And a shift worker doesn't provide you with a good life type deal. At least that's how I can think back to how he might have been thinking at the time. So he never, it was either gym or art, I couldn't take both. And then when I got to the end and I graduated, I I said, I'm like, I I don't know what I want to do at university yet, let's let's not spend all that money. I've been, because the, the high schools are still allowing you to take a victory lap is what we were calling them. You can
0: just, still call it. Yeah, bad.
1: yeah, you can still do it, right? You can still get the, the credits and you can still keep going, and you could still play football at the time. And I don't know if you still can or not. I don't know how that works with, uh, with the sports. But that's what I did. I ended up staying, and because I hadn't taken any art, I got special permission from the art teacher to, to create grade 10, 11, and 12 art. So my days were all day in the art classroom. And then I went to football practice, and I played football. So it was a pretty amazing semester, but I had to also then take some credits at the university. And I started taking some credits there to see what types of things I might be interested in and then pursue those down the way. So that was what I did with my last year before going to Laurier.
0: So you had a little taste of university before you That's left. what it, that
1: was. That's what it ended up being, yeah. Played my final year of football and then had a taste for some different credits. And what's the university there called? Uh, Algoma University, yeah. It's a nice little university. It's, I think it's gotten much better at the time, it was it was a little rural town university, but it's I think tiny. It's, yeah, I think it's it's changed its profile a bit. I think it's a bit more respectable now than it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, then to Laurier, and at Laurier, I played football there for my four years, and I
0: got my
1: history degree.
0: Did you find it difficult being away from your family for the first time?
1: Again, this is where I think uh, my introversion started. To show itself because I've always been a bit of a, my mother always gets angry at me and she always tells me no man is an island. And I've always been very um, closed with that type of stuff. So for me to pick up and satellite move around the world has never been hard for me. I don't know why, but it's just always been very easy for me to go. No matter how far I go, it's
0: I go. what do you mean she gets mad at you
1: she like if she asks me for something and i give her the one word answer it's like she's like oh how is this how are you feeling i'm just like oh i'm good it was fine and she's just like she she wants i guess she thinks i'm just not sharing enough and she wants me to be more open with my feelings
0: she doesn't want you to be a rock with your emotions yeah pretty much you to open up more
1: yeah yeah and i just try to explain to her i'm just like it's that's how that's my process i'm okay with that i don't need more if I need more I'll ask but right now that's that's all I need so
0: so you played football at Laurier as well
1: yeah yeah I played football
0: there that was
1: that was that was a very interesting experience as well so that was something that getting into that varsity sport there it's like it's considered almost semi-professional because there's you're one step away from the CFL Mm -hmm. here or if you're some sort of God the NFL uh, but very rarely does that happen uh, they just got too much money and, and dedication in their program down south we don't even com- compare with them so
0: did you ever have any opportunities to play against teams in the states? no Being God no
1: they so the there's a lot of differences. The two games are entirely different games. Like CFL and NFL aren't the same at all. Rules, field size, everything is wildly different. And right. we'd be slaughtered. We would have been slaughtered by whatever team we would have come up against. I have no doubt in my mind about that. They um, they take it very seriously down there. as something the Americans do very well as sport. And the commodification of sport is such a massive thing down there. There's so much money in it. like. It's wild how much money goes into sports down
0: Have there, been, football. So you've been down and seen and watched games. And oh games yeah, like yeah. I've been. Uh, so
1: we travel sometimes. Uh, my father and, and two of my siblings just went. They, we would try to go and do uh, a weekend. We call it a football weekend. You go and see a college game on Saturday and a pro game on Sunday. So you go and catch two games back to back. And yeah, well, yeah. It's wild.
0: Um, what just, was your favorite place to go and we'll see a game?
1: I've seen. I've been to a lot of different places, and they all they all were nice. I didn't have a favorite place for any of them. Um, I've fallen out of love with sport too. I don't. I no longer. I don't watch it. I don't really participate in it anymore. It's mm-hmm. just. It's something that has has fallen away. My perspective on it has shifted. So, I never had a favorite place to go. I just. I enjoyed the energy of going to all of them. Uh, we went to Notre Dame. That was wild. They. Uh, it's like. Football there is a religion for them.
0: That's the holy grail of football yeah. there. Oh, right? Yeah, it's
1: yeah. That was a pretty wild place and the campus was beautiful. We've been to a couple other ones that were really nice. They're all very nice. I, I haven't been to any of them that weren't. So they was all they were all really cool to go to.
0: Nice. Yeah. So being in football in university, was it was it kind of like that stereotypical Jock culture of people being, you know, playing hard games of football. Uh, all the girls love you guys. Um, parties on the weekends, that sort of thing. Is that is that the kind of stere- stereotypical life of football? So yeah, I player? would say
1: I would say if you were into that, one hundred percent, that's there. Um, there are the girls. There are uh, the social life. There is the the football. I mean, it's all. If you wanted to live that lifestyle, it was there for you. It never really appealed to me, so I never bought fully into the culture. I've always tried to, again, even before I knew what it was, maintain a balance. I didn't want to be just seen as the football guy. I wanted to have other things I enjoyed doing as well. I'm not just a football player. So you always
0: had a certain sense of self awareness. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. I guess that's that's a good way of saying it. Um, But totally, what the biggest thing that blew my mind actually was the the prevalence of, of drugs and substances. In the football culture, so it was.
0: Were you seeing a lot of um, steroid use at the time?
1: It was far more prevalent than I would have ever guessed. Far more prevalent, um, shockingly so, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I again, I, I don't want to condemn anyone with anything, so I'm not going to say much more than that because yeah. it's 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 more than I would have ever expected.
0: Well, I mean, I think nowadays it's even it's even becoming more prevalent, um, especially in people uh, in my age group and older who are looking to hang on to whatever they think they had. Yeah. So they're going in for hormone therapy, right, mm. um, where they're getting prescribed testosterone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think even though it's t- it's still taboo. Yeah. I think cultural culturally it's it's. Much more widely accepted than we than we realize.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's it's such a thing. I've been lucky to always come to a stage, or maybe I, that's just who I am. But I can let go of it when I move on to the next one. I I always feel for those people who just reach back or get stuck in an era that's pat, like behind them. Um, it's really hard to watch someone who doesn't age gracefully. It's,
0: yeah. An attachment can really prevent that,
1: big time. Yeah, big time.
0: So, um, completing high—sorry, uh, completing university from uh, Wilfrid Laurier. Yeah. Um, you decided to go off to Australia and get a Bachelor of Education.
1: Yeah. So I again, like I said, I realized the impact that our teachers have on us uh, as students growing up, and that stage is so uh, influential in our lives that I was decided I was gonna a teacher but why Queensland? I had always been in our Ontario system and it's actually first I wanted to go to New Zealand and then looking at it and I found out that it was uh, something about bringing it back it didn't um, like it wasn't Canadian accredited I would have had to do some equivalencies type stuff coming back so it wasn't going to be as easy that way so then while looking at New Zealand I saw Australia and Australia had Um, equivalencies you just came back and could teach just had to say hey look this is who I am and they say yep that's good we accept it you're now qualified here as well and I'd always been in the Ontario education system and I wanted to see another education system that was similar to ours and to see if they were doing anything differently to see how different another English system was so that's why I chose Australia and then I chose Queensland because it was subtropical and I've always been into flora and fauna and I'd never seen any of the animals like that anywhere else, so it was like being on an alien planet there.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: oh my god, yeah, it was amazing. It was the first time I'd been outside of um, North America, Right. so to go from North America to Australia, this little pocket of evolution that's been its own for so long was
0: wild. Were there many other international students there at the time?
1: So there was a lot of Canadians actually in our program. But the way that that education program works there, it's it's sort of similar how the vet one works here. Is you're in a in a group, and you guys take courses together. So you're with the same people all the time. So there was a couple Canadians in the group with us, um, but mostly Australians there as well. So um, it was a very multicultural city. Brisbane was absolutely stunning. It's one of my favorite
0: cities I've been to. Really?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because
0: in my like, I've never been to Australia. In my mind's eye, I kind of see it as not being very culturally diverse
1: it's not it's definitely not uh, Australia um, has um, I, the way I'd say Australia is at least from my, from my experience, is it's like Canada but like a couple years behind us it's like it's like looking into a window of our past they're they're a bit behind us in a way and they're more English they're much more like British they have like they're more on like they call it tea. And instead of having like dinner or something, they've, they they've kept say,
0: those British
1: traditions more, much more so. And I, I'm sure that's influenced by like the American Revolution over here, and just the the bucking of the the old monarchy here as hard as it was done, and over there it wasn't the same, right? It was their 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 development was very different than ours in North America.
0: So, but you were only there a year, right? Just
1: yeah, about ten months. Just just about ten months, exactly, I think, yeah,
0: so was there anything significant that that you remember or happened while you were there?
1: So Australia was actually was the big changing point for me, actually, where things started to change. that was, was it? yeah, that was where I would say I took my first step back and actual lens down look at my life and who I was and where I was going.
0: Well, you are very removed from everything. That's exactly, exactly what it was. Yeah. That it you took had me. grown up with and familiar with.
1: Yeah. You're, it's like on the other side of the world. It's almost as far away as you can get from where we are now. And the time is almost flipped the opposite way. So it's when I'm awake, everyone I know was, was asleep. So it was an actual, in a way, even with all our technology, a severing of those ties. So it was, it was a time to take myself out of who I thought I was, and look at who I was, and where I wanted to be, and if I was okay with who I was.
0: But yet, at the same time, there must have been like, uh, oftentimes when people go over to overseas or to a different country, they'll they'll go through a very deep culture shock. Mm. But where you were, I don't imagine the culture shock would have been as deep. So it was it was a removal. But it was a kind of almost a safe removal, where it was just like a safe zone to explore yourself. And that's
1: that's exactly what it became. I think it became um, everything was new, right? Like I said, it was like an alien world. So even though it was similar enough, it was it helped me, I guess, in my reflections. Take a look and how everything was just like if a picture is just slightly askew. That was how my life became. It's just like it's my life, but it's just it's not. So I started looking at it again. That's actually where I discovered. Buddhism, and where I say now that I became one of the fallen, in as far as like Christianity is concerned, um, that was a big spot there that that happened to me.
0: It's pretty interesting that you discovered Buddhism yeah. in it, Brisbane as well. Right, isn't yet. that isn't <laughs> that so strange?
1: And the funniest way is, the way I care about it was a TV show. Have you ever heard of the show called Life? Like no. Not the BBC one, the one with, uh, oh, what's his name? Is it Damien Lewis, the redheaded guy from Band of Brothers? He's also in that Homeland show.
0: I, when I was younger, I yeah. le- also left Canada. Yeah. But it was into a culture completely different yeah. from mine. So there's like this whole window of time when I left Canada. Yeah. That is lost to me okay. here. Yeah. So like TV. Yeah. The only thing that we got was like the, uh, probably the two things that that kept me sane in Taiwan was Seinfeld. Yeah. And, and when they opened Costco and I could get mustard <laughs> and cheese. So. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, there's this whole window of time where I'm like. Yeah. Totally out to lunch as far as far as cultural. Fair. Things that happened, yeah. you know?
1: Well, it was an American show that they weren't carrying in America anymore, but they had started playing in Australia. So I just stumbled across it one day when I had the TV on. Um, and I thought, this is really cool. And he... So the concept behind the show is that he was a cop who gets um, accused and com- uh, convicted of a crime he didn't commit and they gave him uh, life, life, a life sentence. And while he's there, he the only thing that keeps him sane is this book? He finds a book about uh, Buddhism, so he comes out like this kind of quasi-Buddhist um, on a path of revenge. It's actually a fantastic show, but uh, that's kind of what turned me on to it. And then I started looking into um, all these other religions, and it wasn't my first true discovery of Buddhism because I also um, had a minor uh, in religious studies. But a lot of uh, the, a. yes, a lot of my studies there. And when I said it became one of the fallen, it wasn't. I should come back a bit now to Laurier because I could walk you right now on that campus to the seat that I was sitting in. I don't even remember if the professor was a boy or a girl. I have no memory of who the professor was. But they were going through this this exercise. And like I said, I, I could put you in the seat I was sitting in when my faith was shattered. And it was just a simple thing. It was this simple little exercise in some second year religious studies class. And... Uh, they were talking about how you properly analyze a historical source. And me being a history major, I was just like kind of not paying attention. Just like, I know all this stuff. You look at who wrote it. You look at the time it was written and try to find all the biases that would have impacted the source. And then the professor at the time just pulled out a Bible and just like said, like, this is a historical source. And I remember just like an absolute mind explosion moment, just thinking, holy shit, this is a historical source. This isn't the law I thought it was. So that was the moment that my faith was challenged, and it turned out to be irre- uh, irreparable. Can, can
0: you expand on that a little bit? Because sure, like how would, when he said this is a historical source, yeah. how did that blow your mind?
1: So what? I never looked at the Bible as a historical source before, right? I was raised Roman Catholic by very devout parents. Um, grandparents on both sides very devout the entire family was very devout so you don't challenge the teachings of the church there you just kind of accept them so it was this even though I'd been doing everything in my education looking through and combing through all the historical records to try to find what they were saying at the time and what this could mean that that book kind of stayed in its little safe box is like it stood alone it wasn't it wasn't a book it was it was law it was like a story it was it wasn't a source but
0: it was something to live by rather than rather than uh, rather than a reference book maybe. exactly it
1: wasn't it it never for me until that point it was never somebody's writings on a piece of paper in a period of time to be looked at again it was this was an actual text it was like the word of god in physical form that we had it was what was passed down to us And it was just, the way your brain works is you just protect certain things even when you don't realize you're doing it, right? And that's what it was. The Bible for me was protected until this person just said very simply, this is a source. And that was just, that's all it was. All they did was turn my head towards something that I wasn't looking at. And it was just started me down this cascading path where then by the end of it, it took me a couple years, but by the end of it, the book was just a book written by people in a very different time for a very different purpose.
0: So. Right, so it, it it kind of tore apart the original significance that it had for you. Yeah. That it almost became equal to any other source book in your history.
1: Exactly. Course. Which is also funny because like, we talked about other, again, with my religious studies, it's like you look at the different religious texts and you see them as just books they're not they're not the same as the bible at least for me it wasn't the same as the bible until that moment then the bible was put on equal playing field in the same arena it's like someone took a shield off of it it was immune to all of these other criticisms and then this professor removed that shield and then handed it back to me and just said no like here this is what this is and then
0: do you think that the professor had that intention I honestly
1: couldn't speak back to that professor at all, whether they were good or not. I have no other memories of them. Like I said, I can't even remember um, who they were as a person.
0: You just remember the impact.
1: That's all it was. It was from that entire course. So how
0: did that relate to your discovery of Buddhism in Brisbane?
1: So I had had a void, I guess. There was an emptiness there. My spirituality was still present, but my belief in that religion had totally vacated at the time. So there was a vacuum. Right. And I was looking for something and... Buddhism made so much more sense to me at the time from my actual core beliefs. So,
0: well, before you get to Buddha, uh, Buddhism, yeah. just uh, to rewind a little bit. Sorry to bring you back. No, forward. it's okay. Like that. it's, that's fine. But, um, so when that happened and, and there was that breakdown um, and and the kind of um, readjustment of your belief system, did, well, Two, two the question's twofold. One... Do you think that at first it was a positive or negative thing? Like when there was, when, when there was this void created Mm -hmm. and nothing to fill it right away, was it puzzling for you? Like, was it difficult for you to deal with? And then the second part of the question is, did you open up to your family about it at first?
1: Okay. That's so I can get to this one and we'll do it too. The family one we'll start with and no. It took me a while to get to there. It took me a while, like over years, to get myself okay with where I was. So I, it, did, it took me a long time before they knew where I was at. Um, but eventually, yes, I did tell them, but it wasn't while I was figuring it out. I realized that my family had their beliefs, and I need to figure this out on my own in order to be able to get anywhere of meaning to me. Um, and as far as like creating that void, if I believe it was positive or negative, I... I don't know that it was positive or negative as much as it was necessary.
0: Like, how did you deal with it emotionally, I guess, is what I'm getting So,
1: for, for me, it was, it w- I guess it would have been a positive thing emotionally. Um, I imagine it, so picture it like someone, you have a closet in your life, and it's full. Excuse me. And you're carrying, this closet's always there, but you've never filled it, but it's taking up a part of your life. So, for me, I had to go through that closet and look at everything that was in it and see what parts of it I actually wanted to keep and what I didn't. So the process of going through that closet for me was very liberating, and I threw most of it. I emptied almost the entire closet. So that that was a very positive
0: uh, emotional experience. So the by the professor saying that to you, he was almost like saying, "Here, you, you're allowed to clean out your closet if you want."
1: He actually, it was more just he pointed at the closet and said, "Yeah, like that's that's yours. Like you do with that what you want." And then I thought. Holy shit! I've got a lot of work to do here. So,
0: yeah. Okay. So now back to Buddhism in Brisbane. Yeah. So it sounds, like, sounds like a great book title. <laughs> yeah, Buddhism in Brisbane. It does
1: sound like a great book title. Um, it uh, it was. So I'd studied it already, but I had done it in an academic sense, not like any way that's of value of substance. It's just like this is what they believe. This is part of the idea. This is the wheel. These are the symbols. That type of stuff and now is going back and looking at it and saying this is what they believe these are their teachings these are the practices that reflect that and for for me that made so much more sense especially the the interconnectedness of everything is what what that's what got me mostly out of everything because christianity doesn't really have that i mean i mean christians could argue they do but it's not practiced the same way or believed
0: the same way that
1: it is in buddhism
0: that Predominantly, it's not.
1: Yeah, exactly. I it's,
0: mean, I imagine there because there's so many different types of Christianity. I imagine there are some types of Christianity which are more in line with that kind of that way of living. Yeah. But um, yeah, growing up in Roman Catholic, things were very much institutionalized. Yes.
1: Right? Yeah, and in the like the Catholic faith always is very much for you like it's family. It's very very. Person and like family centered where I found Buddhism was just like this entire web connecting to everything which that for me was the biggest thing that grabbed my attention it was everything it was the earthworms in the dirt It was the birds in the sky. It was everything absolutely everything is connected And I loved the idea of the cyclical nature of the soul That was something else that I really enjoyed for me this ascension or dissension of your eternal self Uh, never really sat well with me. Um, And that's why that cyclical nature just made so much more sense from what I understood about the world as I had seen it. And just, yeah, I guess just
0: sat better with me. It just made more sense. So can you explain to me or tell me a little bit about how you were introduced to Buddhism in Brisbane?
1: So like I said, it was that TV show. Yeah. And it was, they, they do a fantastic job with it. Again, if you ever have some time, it's only two seasons. It's not long. If you ever just, I know you're very busy, but if you never need something to turn off to, it's a great show to turn off to. And it was just, he listens to some tapes that are like audiobooks type deal. And they have like Buddhist teachings. So they're like something the Dalai Lama would say. And they adapted a bit and quoted in the show or something he says. And it was those little. Like Buddhist meditations that grabbed my attention. And that's why I looked into it more and started seeing more of what the religion was. So that's that was my gateway to actually interacting with Buddhism instead of just studying it.
0: So outside the show, did you go and start getting into oh, totally, texts? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I
1: started going down and especially everything's online now, right? So you just pull up and it's just like everything. It's like I wasn't doing my assignments now, I was starting to look through like flying through different forums and looking at different sacred texts and that type of stuff and really getting involved in Buddhism. And part of my education was as a religious studies minor, I was getting a religious studies teachable, uh, which in Ontario here is a Roman Catholic indoctrination. It's not a religious studies teachable. There, it's different. You actually go through the different world religions. So we were also then starting a unit on the world religions and I went fully at our Buddhism unit and just like everything that the school had I was going through I was making these assignments for these students and I was getting so excited about it because it was to me at that moment was so much more than just everything that we had known and it was so different from this western ideal of the one God sitting down judging you pass or fail type deal so it was I I fully had immersed into the Buddhism there at that time
0: and So now being in Brisbane, Queensland, you've Mm -hmm. taken this Buddhism course. Is this also like when you discovered that this interconnectedness that you talk about, is this kind of when you first feel your connection with animals?
1: So no, the connection with animals, and my mother will, she's always telling it, and I think she's so happy that I'm doing this now because she has this little flower pot you make when you're a child that you bring home. You're like, here, mom. And on it it says I want to be a vet. So even as a child I've always been very strongly connected with animals the whole way through. And it's just somewhere in the middle, things got pushed away and I stopped looking at the paths that I could follow. Also in this in the Sioux, something that I hope they've gotten better at now, it's I had no idea what I what I could be. And like the breadth of jobs out there. It's like well what am I gonna am I gonna come and be a lawyer? Am I gonna be a doctor? Am I gonna be a teacher or am I gonna work in a factory? Like these are the jobs. That's pretty much all there is, right? So yeah. when when you have that such a narrow field of options, you, you don't really consider it. Just like I'm not gonna be a doctor, so I don't need the sciences. I'm not gonna be an engineer, so I don't need the maths. So what am I gonna what am I gonna be? So that's that kind of got pushed aside. The animals became like sort of a, a, a sideline like enjoyment for me and something I've always still interacted with, but it never again, occurred to me for a long time that they could be a career path.
0: So how, what kind of relationship did you have with animals when you were younger? Was it just like family pet or?
1: So we had family pets, but even then it was more than that. It was always just like, my mother could probably explain it better than I can, but it was always just a very strong connection to animals. I've always, I one time failed a high school assignment because we had to write about uh, the soul. And my whole assignment was about the human soul and how I thought this assignment was dumb. Because it was too narrow-sighted. And this is when I was still very strongly in the Catholic belief line. And mm-hmm. even then, I was still saying, well, These animals have souls. This is stupid that we can't see these animals have souls. And like I said, I failed it and I happily took that fail in that assignment. I didn't redo it because that was something.
0: Is that the. Do you think that's the reason you failed? Or just because because that made you disinterested in anything else that.
1: Oh, so it was only just one assignment. I didn't fail the whole class. Oh, they just okay. gave me the, like the zero on the assignment.
0: I see. And. Um,
1: and the reason why I feel that, I've also have, and it, I mean, it hasn't come up yet, but it is now a very strong um, oppositional streak. Very strong. Um, if I ever feel like someone in authority or has power is pushing in a way that's unjust, I push back with all the energy I can muster. So whenever I see something that I consider to be a slight or a wrong, I push with fire in the opposite direction.
0: Have you, uh, have you heard of a woman named Gretchen Rubin? I don't, I don't know the name, no. She's an interesting woman. She used to be a lawyer and then she um, started writing books. Mm-hmm. She recently wrote a book called The Four Tendencies. Okay. And one of those tendencies is The Rebel. It's exactly that. Yeah. It's like anytime you're told you have to do something. Oh, I have the hardest time with it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, there are four. So there's The Rebel, There's The Obliger, There's The Questioner, and Then There's The Upholder. Mm. And they each have different uh different ways of receiving information different ways of engaging with the world but yeah you totally sound like the rebel when you say that
1: i i would yeah i would have to say i'm um, tendencies i can i'm sure there's a, a smattering of all of them in me yeah. but the strongest one is is that one it's it's the rebel so yeah i forgot where we were before that now
0: Yeah, you were talking about uh, animals having souls. Oh, right, right. So I've always had
1: a strong connection to animals. Um, And now fast-forwarding way into the future, um, when this switch for me started towards this now vegan lifestyle that I currently lead, um, one day I was talking about my beliefs, which have been always the same, but were hollow because my practices didn't echo them. And my old boss, who's now my friend, who's my friend at the time too, called me a hypocrite one day and I remember thinking y- you're right I actually am a hypocrite because I was condemning I was upset that everyone was hunting because it's beautiful in the fall and the school that I was working at was in the middle of uh, the Ottawa Valley which is a very very remote place
0: okay I, wa- I want to get yeah. to that in a little while yeah so we'll get to that whole, whole okay. experience in a little, little, little while but I still want to follow along chronologically a okay bit. so we'll
1: come back again yeah,
0: yeah. But we'll get we'll come yeah. back to that in a little while yeah for sure all right for sure. Um But so when you were at, when you were in um Brisbane, did you also uh, have opportunities to engage with animals as well?
1: So not really. I mean yes, we went to a lot of um I did a lot of traveling around Brisbane and yeah, I because Australia
0: going, has a huge like they have problems with feral animals like kangaroos and, and cats and stuff, right? Yeah. So and, and well when you think of Australia you always think of koala bears mm-hmm. and you know.
1: Yeah. So there was, I would always do a lot of walking in Australia. It also helped me deal with my thoughts. And I was in this very reflective stage of my life. So I did a lot of walking. And like I say, it's like walking through an alien world. There's birds, but they're different birds. There's like little rainbow lorikeets flying around everywhere. There's cockatoos, there's kookaburras, there's all kinds of birds you've never seen before. Like uh, well, I mean people might have seen them before, but I had never seen before and those were the irregular birds. Same way we have sparrows and chickadees, they've got cockatoos and lorikeets. so it's that that was uh, an interaction I had. They've got uh, water dragons everywhere, just like giant lizards all over the place because it's a river uh, city. so there's river everywhere, so there's lizards all over the place. They've got all kinds of really cool. Uh, different animals and plants so I just did like I said a lot of walking and it's subtropical so I'd go on a lot of bush walks and see a lot of different cool things so those are my interactions with animals there as well as we went to a Koala Sanctuary uh, which wasn't a Koala Sanctuary it's just a zoo they call it a sanctuary but it's not looking back at it went to the Australia Zoo which as far as a zoo goes is actually a pretty fantastic zoo um, Steve Irwin did great work with that place they that should be what all zoos aspire to be and I'm sure we'll get back onto zoos eventually if it, if we have time for that but um, and there was another wildlife reserve which is a really small road type zoo that had a lot of Australian animals in it so those were my interactions there but never never like in a personal besides like a kookaburra one time at a campsite came down and was feeding us and kangaroos on the side of the road
0: and I've also heard that uh, Australia maybe I'm I could be right or wrong in this mm. but australia also has a, a wide variety of insects and snakes that can be uh dangerous to your health 100 they do yeah. yeah it's like that's the joke it's like everything will kill you there yeah
1: um i never interacted with any of them thankfully i it, they didn't cross my path or if they did i didn't notice them you didn't have to go crocodile so, and
0: like, no, no. carry a big yeah. knife and- <laughs> no
1: never had to do that type of stuff no we didn't go so we stayed in mostly, I and my friends I was there with stayed mostly in the the urban parts. We did um, an East Coast road trip all the way down to the Twelve Apostles right at the bottom of Australia there. And so we stayed mostly um, in urban places where there where there wasn't like as much of the desert and everything that that they have with all of the really deadly stuff out there. The outback. Yeah, especially. Yeah, it yeah, didn't go out there.
0: Okay, so now you've spent your time in Australia. You've yeah. had that exposure. It's kind of given you a chance to reflect away from everything else. Yeah. Um, so now you're uh, re-entry into Canadian culture again. Yeah. You come back and... Uh, you- did you start a job right away? Like, I don't think you started a job right away at the Halliburton Forest and Wild no, in a No, so I
1: didn't. That, that was a little while, and we'll get to that one, too. But I'll walk you through what happened. There's, like so,
0: there's like a gap there between 2009. Yeah. Uh, you finished 2009 in, uh, in Australia. Yeah, in, and then so 2010, what were yeah. you up to? So in
1: 2010, I came back, and I started looking for work. I knew I wasn't ready to teach. I just finished teacher's college, and I was just too much teacher. I just needed to breathe from teaching for a little bit. So I got a job. I was living back at my uh, childhood home with my parents, and I got a job as a, as a security guard, and that job sucked.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: that job was really bad.
0: Yeah, every time I see security oh, guards, I think that job has to be... It's it's
1: one of the worst jobs I've had, yeah. I've, and I've had a lot. I mean, we've, we've just gone through a huge period of time where I had so many jobs in that process. Run through them like what? Oh, okay, so we started, like we talked about, to you work worked at that. the rank. Yeah, and then from there I started working at a, a concession stand, like a popcorn stand at uh, OHL games. So the Sioux Greyhounds, I would uh, sell popcorn at their games. And then there was, I started working at Sportcheck while still in high school. So those are my two high school jobs. And then, oh, I might skip a couple here, but then when I started going to school at Laurier, playing football is a job, so I didn't have a job there. But in the summers... I worked um, for the city of Sault Ste. Marie in the cemeteries division where I was uh, part of the internment crew. So I buried people for uh, five summers. That was my job there. Then after that, I went... Or the to, technical name could be called Gravedigger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I spent some time as a gravedigger. And then after that, I was in Australia where I was doing teacher's college and then I came back. And then I was a security guard. So those are the jobs in that little span there. Um, Never had to do your
0: time as a line cook in a kitchen. You know what? I was
1: a dishwasher for a couple months. Yeah. And that job sucked as well. Uh, My brother, though, he was a dishwasher at a golf course. And they used to have a fish night, a fish fry night. And oh my God, I hated picking him up that night because he just stunk so bad. Like.
0: So lots of embracing the suck.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of my jobs sucked really bad. They had some cool parts to them, but they all had, I mean, most. Like everything else, it has its positives and negatives. Just most of my jobs had a heavier negative category than a positive
0: positive. But you strike one. me as the kind of guy who kind of, kind of tries to make the best of any situation you're in.
1: Yeah, I, I enjoyed them all. Even when they were awful jobs, I still had fun with them. Yeah. But, yeah. So, the security guard for a little while. And then I got a job at the steel plant that my father worked at that pretty much provided for our whole family. There. Just give me a second here nice tea yeah so I got a job there at the steel mill and my job when I first started there they hired me to be in the HR department and I thought perfect this is gonna be nice I'll be working in HR just paperwork stuff while I get stuff figured out um, uh, two days before I was supposed to start they called me and told me they switched me to labor and they're putting me in the mill so wow. I had to go and get boots and everything and get ready to go in the mill. And my first job when I started there, I was a test cutter. So what a test cutter does is I'm on the floor uh, inside this giant mill and they bring me um, plates. They, it's, it's, it's a steel fabrication mill. So it's just hot rolled plates, just long sheets of steel longer than this house. And they just drop them down this big crane with giant magnets, puts them down and I have to cut a chunk out of them. And they're different thickness so I've got a six foot long lance which is just a blowtorch that's six feet long and I'm using it to cut steel so I'm cutting out these tests all day and I'm also stamping thin plates so stamping is just you have two guns pretty much and they just fire them they load them with blanks and you put in the the plate number of the steel you're going on you just go down and you shoot them shoot these guns while you mark this plate so I had that job for About three months I worked at until I got promoted inside of the steel plant to be uh, pretty much a stevedore, a a, a stalker, they called it. And I would do is I'd mark coils and make sure they got on the right uh, place so they get on the right barge and go to the right destination. So that was my job there for a while. Then there was layoffs and I got laid off, which was the best thing for me.
0: (laughs) That's patches. Yeah. Eight patches. (laughs) Hello? So you got laid off?
1: So yeah, I got laid off. And why this was so nice is because when they laid me off, I was able to then collect unemployment insurance and actually look at what I wanted to do. I had been off for long enough and I wanted to decide what I wanted to be and where I was in my life right there it wasn't great I I hated that job that job was one that was like sucking the life force out of me it was yeah. awful it was union work people were underachieving constantly it was just not a place I wanted to be
0: it was a grind people were doing their job and going home
1: exactly Exactly. Eat watch TV and re, you know read exactly it. yeah that's exactly and that's not where I want to be so for me that was really difficult but this getting laid off allowed me to again start to cruise around a bit make some money while I figured out what I wanted to do so I got to I decided I wanted to go I had a friend of mine who I played football with he was living in Peterborough and I started taking an additional qualification course which was correspondence through Trent I didn't need to be there but I decided I wanted to change up my life a bit
0: and just for reference Trent University in Peterborough yes yeah.
1: so I went to Peterborough and I just lived there for a while and while I was there I was taking this course. Um, I decided one day I watched this documentary on wolves and I was like, I'm going to work with wolves. So I searched in Google. I just typed in. I was like, working with wolves in Ontario and the first place that comes up is the Halliburton Forest. and Wildlife my first Have you ever seen that IMAX movie, Wolves? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I've seen a lot of wolf documentaries, especially after working with them. I've seen so many, I can't remember which ones I have and yeah. I haven't seen. But I think so. I think that I've seen that one. If
0: you ever have an opportunity, download the soundtrack.
1: Oh, yeah? It's amazing. Okay, yeah. we'll do that. That sounds good to me. So I, uh, I looked at them. They had a program there, an outdoor education internship. So I took that internship, and that worked out as I got... Uh, this was my introduction to the outdoor industry now. And This is something I loved growing up in a rural part of Ontario. Being outdoors was just... Playtime. Yeah. Yeah. So that this could be my job and this could be what it was, was amazing. So I ended up guiding some mountain bike tours, doing some rock climbing, doing some vertical ropes, like course uh, supervision, a couple canopy tours. And then the best part of it for me was guiding dog sled tours. And this was uh, just like heaven for me. They had 164 dogs. And for seven months, I spent a lot of that time with the dogs, especially starting in uh, November, where the place pretty much shuts down. And that's all that's becomes almost entirely dog training season. So you have to get all the dogs ready to run all winter long. And
0: this is this is in Peterborough or?
1: in Sorry, this was in Peterborough. I decided to leave Peterborough and go to Halliburton when I okay, searched so the this, place. So
0: the dog sliding was in Halliburton. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So now we're at Halliburton. So
1: there's, I guess we're getting kind of linear in this story of mine that's not oh, yeah. all. It's, it's, yeah.
0: We're following that path. It,
1: yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm in Halliburton now. And like I said, working with these dogs was just like the most amazing thing ever. Um, when I first started there, I thought this could be a place where I would be able to live the rest of my life. Because the man who owned it was talking about sustainability and he had all these ideas on how to get it people off the grid and provide power for the whole city uh, through these different ways that he could do and he had all this um, all these beautiful words which I found out were just words as the more time I spent there um, I realized he was actually just a really aggressive capitalist and had no care for the environment and it just didn't it just wasn't going to work out for me so the hardest thing for me was that I disagreed (laughs) <laughs> I disagreed with how they treated their dogs mostly. they they believed that a really heavy hand in training is the best way to go about.
0: I'm just gonna let her yeah, upstairs yeah. so we can continue. Yeah. <laughs> so So now coming back to uh sustainability capitalist.
1: Yeah, so like I said, it didn't work out for me there because the hardest issue I had with them was that they were very heavy-handed with the way they wanted to train their dogs. And I showed them that you could do it without any type of physical contact with the dogs. And they, they were very impressed, but they didn't change their handling procedures there. So. Where did you learn that? Um, just from my interactions with animals over time. I found out I have a very innate ability of just breeding Their body language and understanding how. When did
0: you first learn that?
1: I I don't know. I don't, I guess I always just knew I had it because when I was with the dogs there, it was, I mean, it was cemented there. When I was with them, it was very clear to me there. Also, if you've seen that show, The Dog Whisperer, I watched a couple episodes and even then I was thinking, well, he watching him interact with the dogs, I even thought, that's a bit much. You've gone a bit too far there. It's a bit too heavy-handed. He, he's done, he did great things. He helped people understand a lot about dogs and their behavior. But even his style was a bit heavier than I agree with. I don't love, and most of the training now is moving away from it, very far away from it. But the dominance style of training is a very unreliable method. Because as soon as you get an anxious dog or a dog who's just, not going to take that anymore. You then have what's labeled a dangerous dog where the dog isn't dangerous. It just doesn't want to be dominated. I mean, that's it's like the cruel taskmaster versus the person who walks beside you. So was
0: there kind of a discovery process for you with the, with the sled dogs of you saying, hey, I have the superpower?
1: It, it kind of was. It was uh, mostly just I would witness and, again, see someone doing something and not like it and say, hey, look, you can, you can do it this way. And just go up and just show them. And it's just like the dog will do exactly this if you just do this. So it was, it was a really, like I said, cementing. I always knew I was comfortable with them. I didn't realize how comfortable I was to the point where we could have a conversation and the dogs would know what I wanted and they would do it. So it was, that was, that was the biggest reason why I left there was because I couldn't see myself continuing with that style of training and working with people who saw them that way. Mm -hmm. So that was the end of that one for me there. And then while I was there, I was actually, um, my partner at the time um, told me about this other place. And it was similar. Uh, had no animals though. But I thought that's okay because they have, the education component is more strong there. And so this is, I'm in Halliburton right now. Yeah. And now she's telling me about this place called Boundless, which is now currently called the Boundless School and has become even more academically focused now. And they worked with at-risk populations. Pretty much they take people who have no business being in the wilderness and take them out into the wilderness. So I applied to Boundless, um, had a Skype interview with a very, very unique um, the the runner, the, uh, the owner of Boundless, Steve Gottlieb. I had a very unique Skype interview with him where he was trying to suss out, and he has a very unique process of interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And he, for the most part, manages to pick very great staff members. He misses every now and again, but it, everyone makes mistakes. And then I went and had an interview there, and then I shifted my life from Halliburton over to Palmer Rapids. And started working at Boundless. And
0: Palmer Rapids, if I'm not mistaken, is a, is west of Ottawa, about three quarters of the way to Algonquin Park?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's about two and a half hours west of Ottawa. It's just outside. It's a tiny little town. It's in like between Barry's Bay and Bancroft, if you made a triangle of the three of them. Um, I don't know if you know where any of those are, but it's a tiny little place on this beautiful river called the Madawaska River. And it's like a whitewater paradise. So this is then where I got my introduction to Whitewater and I started playing in rapids. So that was then where I started the next stage and that was where I really got into more the education and working with youth again. Um, We also worked with agencies that had clients who had acquired brain injuries Uh, and mental health issues as well. We worked with adults with mental health issues. And that was like an entirely different experience for me. That was something I never thought I would enjoy and never looked at and then was just in the middle of it.
0: So when you were earlier, you were talking about uh, boundless school, they also worked with a lot of at-risk youth. Mm -hmm. So, um, and oftentimes kids who would never have had that exposure. Um, in fact, I was on their website last night and one of the photographs that comes up on their, on the website, this one kid just looks like he just doesn't want to be there doing that. Yeah. <laughs> the other two people in the photograph are really happy and yeah. he's just staying there like, yeah, <laughs> God damn it. I just want to go home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So
1: they work with a really cool system there. It's not like a punishment or discipline based system. The way it works is they're saying, look, this is the opportunity we're going to provide you with. Um. These are the rules we have. Follow them, and you can stay. If you don't follow them, you go home. That's How
0: do they end up there, though?
1: So it depends on the program. So we'll go, mostly they're moving towards this uh, live-in school model that they have there now, so we'll talk more mostly like about Like a boarding them. school. Exactly, yeah, exactly like that. So you can either get referred by one of the agencies that they have uh, contact with, or you can be searched out. And the cool thing about the boundless School is that they work on half of a private model and half of a public model. So if you're a private student, you're paying a tuition. If you're a public student, your tuition's being comped by partially the private sector, partially other funding that they get. So you get this mixing of these two social groups that would almost never mix otherwise because of the huge gaps between them. So they're actually really fantastic interactions you get with these students. It's it's pretty wild, yeah. Amazing. It it was it was absolutely fantastic.
0: My um, my third child, Ethan, mm-hmm. he did uh, he did a program at at uh, high school where they did their whole semester out at out at uh, Eden Mills mm-hmm. at a camp there. Okay. So kind of like um, it's called Kelp. So like. K E L P? No, C E L P. Okay. Um, I think it's like Community Environment Living Program or something like that. Okay. So basically, they're out in nature, they're journaling, mm-hmm. they go on a trip up to Algonquin, they do all this stuff. Um, and then later, and then you can, when you finish that program, you can do uh, another program, which is even more intense. Mm. Uh, you make your own moccasins and cool. like, you portage out into, yeah, it's, it's a really, interesting program and great that they have it in high school. Yeah, that sounds pretty nice. It it sounds kind of kind of not as intense as what you did, but
1: no. Yeah, well ours is also it's it's intense but it's also light. Um, and depending on which program it is, so if we uh, in the summer, for example, we'd have a fifteen day trip and you'd spend if with the students are older about five or more days out with them, you actually go out on a five day trip and you run a river with them, you bring all your supplies Dropped off at the beginning, picked up at the end type deal. Um, the boarding school or the living school there is a bit more in and out. You have classes during the week and then you have the outdoor leadership program over the weekend type deal. So...
0: So, I mean, this sounds like an amazing job.
1: It, it was an absolutely amazing job and I loved it.
0: And I you went it. from teacher mm-hmm. and then later became vice principal? So, yeah, the,
1: the vice principal thing is just a way to equate the position so that it makes sense because the school there isn't like uh, a regular school. It's an independent school, but it doesn't function the same way. You don't have um, a principal and a vice principal that are there all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it works is we have our principal, our director of education. He's like the brains behind it. He drives the education portion. And this of, is the fellow that uh, interviewed you? No, no, that is, uh, that's Steve. He's the fellow that runs the whole operation. Okay. So everything falls under his umbrella. And then underneath him, you have like the, uh, there's a couple other positions that are up there, but one of them so is the So he's a more education. responsible
0: for like the organizational structure, finding funding, like all that stuff. Exactly, okay. exactly.
1: He's the top. And then underneath him, One of the portions of the program is like the education portion. The director of education is like the principal there. He's the one who signs all the report cards and makes sure that all the curriculum is being delivered and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, then, if you follow that line down, is the mentor position. And the way it works is because the kids are constantly there and we don't have to be. We have two mentors. You have a weekday mentor and a weekend mentor. So you had one that's there doing the English and academic side of it and one that's doing the outdoor portion of it and I was the one in charge of the English during the week portion of it so those we also had math and that type of stuff so whatever they were doing in classroom style that was what fell under my management and that job is just like a vice principal you're managing staff student issues anyone has a problem they come and see you so it's that was what I was doing
0: there yeah so again sounds like a pretty sweet job yeah it was like sweet I don't mean sweet as in as in each like an easy... Yeah, yeah, no, or anything, but like... But I just mean really engaging, uh, you know, you're serving these kids. Yeah. Um, you're kind of... You're kind of... You're kind of doing everything that you've been preparing to do up until that point, right? Yeah, yeah, So it was. would you say that you really enjoyed that that time? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Okay, yeah. so then like... Yeah. You up and left. I did. You, I mean, I'm sure you did it gracefully. Yeah. But... Um, you decided to just like uproot and change your whole direction. Yes. so This is the, the big turning point. This, I would is, say.
1: this is the one, yeah. So everything's been a meandering until here. And then at Boundless, it to me looked like it was a now straight path for who knows how long. Yeah. And while there, again, this comes back to where I then became vegan, vegetarian. And this is where everything that's been bubbling and I've been toying with starts to get just ironed out and everything starts to just, make more sense but
0: you were there for what four years
1: about three in a bit I think it was okay. yeah but yeah so there for three years yeah
0: so what was the what's what was the impetus behind um the whole change uh, the career or which
1: one are we talking you mean like uh, the, the well, life change I
0: took yeah I think that the life and career change kind of maybe happened at around the same time so they did yeah so was there was there anything in particular that was an impetus or was it... So there
1: is one, I can give you one moment, um, but I think in order to get to that one moment, we have to build a bit sure. of what gets me to the summit that that moment can push me off the edge of.
0: Take us there. So, okay.
1: So it started out, this place is, again, a paradise. You're working with very um, intelligent, active, energizing people. They're all these wild from different walks of life. So it was just, again, someplace for me just... To interact with so many different perspectives and, and and interests and I was just, everything was just expanding and everything was growing for me so that was a really cool stage and it was here that I was, we could have these these really strong debates and conversations and one of the ones I was having was Steve and I was saying to him that um again talking about animals because Steve is Steve and I love to have banter with each other and Steve is He was, at the time, he called himself a shameless carnivore and just a a user and a consumer because that's what the universe does. It consumes. And my response was always, I agree, but we don't have to be mindless peons in that consumption. We can choose what we consume. (laughs) At this time, I was still eating meat. Um, And he challenged me on it. He called me a hypocrite. And he was right. He was 100% right. I was being a hypocrite. So I then decided to go vegetarian. At the same time, the current director of education who had moved on by the time I had left, his name was uh, Gus. And he turned me on to podcasts. I'd never listened to a podcast before then. So I used to drive a lot back and forth from Palmer Rapids to Sault Ste. Marie or driving to see friends. Anywhere you're going from Palmer Rapids is pretty much two hours at least. So I've got a lot of alone time in the car. because so I started just burning through audiobooks and I was running out of audiobooks. And he turned me on to podcasts. So I was listening to, I was going through this list of podcasts and I was like, I love animals. I'll just, uh, I'll get this one. This one's called Animal Voices. It's probably something cool. From the description, I couldn't really tell what it was. So I downloaded a whack of these Animal Voices podcasts. I'm driving back from Sault Ste. Marie, visiting my family to Boundless, and eating leftover bacon from the breakfast there. And I put it on. And it's like, this animal voices the vegan podcast from the. I was like, oh. hold
0: on. So, yeah, were you like a quasi vegetarian at this time? This I haven't gone vegetarian oh, yet. Okay. No, this
1: okay. this was the start of that switch.
0: But you remember eating that leftover bacon? That was the last time.
1: thing I've eaten. Yeah, that was the last animal product. Well, not the last animal product I consumed. That was the last piece of meat I consumed. Was this bacon in this car because I was driving and this podcast comes on and I've got eight hours, nothing else to do but listen to these podcasts I've downloaded. And they were all vegan podcasts. So I'm going and the first couple hours, the first couple of podcasts weren't bad. There was some guys like Vegan Zombie or something. They do a cooking show on YouTube and talking about a bunch of different things. And then this, this woman came on. She was a doctor. And I can't even remember. I wish I remembered the name of the podcast. But she ended up posing, I think it was a series of three or five questions. And I could answer none of them in good conscience. I, I realized that what she was saying made sense to me and who I was, was not the person I had been, like the behaviors I was practicing were not who I was. Do you remember the questions? I, that's the thing, I don't remember them either. Okay. I, I, again, it was one of those moments where I just remember the feeling right. I had in that time. And it was just like, I had, I had like bacon in my hand and it was pretty much just like, I'm, I'm done, I'm done now. So I got back to boundless and I was like, I'm a vegetarian. And then I started looking more and more into it and then became a vegan not long after.
0: Were they accommodating to special need uh, well, special? Well, I, won't, I shouldn't call it special yeah. needs, but but um uh, a variety of ways of eating.
1: So I uh, I wasn't. I think I had an advantage being not a vegan or vegetarian when I started there, and I had a relationship with the chef who was a kind of rural chef. Uh, like he, he grew up in the middle of this tiny little town, and to him, your interactions with animals are shooting them, hooking them. And eating them, pretty much. That's like you have a dog; it's an outdoor dog, and you eat everything else, pretty much. So uh, the school was also great. They worked with us to get their their stuff better. But I remember one of the first times after going vegetarian, there the meal they served us was just a brick of firm tofu that had been marinating in ketchup all day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So
0: that's hilarious. Yeah, like
1: I had to, what I had to cook it. like the idea was just put that in the oven and then eat it when it's warm pretty much so it was and in his defense he's never done anything like it before and when we spoke to him about it it was just like man come on Craig like you know I'm not some vegan hippie nut job here man it's just like there's there's better things you can do and he did he got much better and they made much better food there so the switch to vegetarian was very easy because you can still eat cheese and eggs and milk products right so it wasn't it wasn't a hard switch at all, and while I stayed there because of how intense the schedule was and everything that was going on there, I was vegetarian while on site and mostly vegan off of site. And then after leaving there, I went at uh, this point. I went full vegan when I was purchasing all on my own and providing my own food. That's when I was made the switch from vegetarian to vegan.
0: Right. So when you um, when you left there, mm-hmm. do you think that? So your conversations with Steve after that, when he called you a hypocrite, mm-hmm. um, did you kind of come ba- or like, did you come back and and, and show him that you had so, yeah, locked I mean, down you had committed yeah that's how it, that's how our conversations then went and then
1: I became the bleeding heart instead of the hypocrite I was then the bleeding heart and we would have we still have conversations to this day where he's since started to concede and saying that that my perspective and position makes sense for me right? And he's saying, and his his wife and daughter have now gone vegetarian as well. And um, my entire family has almost gotten vegetarian, which is a big thing because we were Italian, right? We were, we are Italian in descent. We used to make our own sausages and salami, and that was a huge cultural thing for them. So for my parents to also have a, a proper look, again, another unique thing about my family is not just reject information that's coming to them, it's have a look at it and We'll, we'll get change. there in a little while. okay okay I don't think we're there yet no no we're so we want to go back to what why I left paradise pretty much so. right so we built up and this is the changes I'm going through and I'm having again another look at who I am and who I should be or who I feel um, I'm projecting into the world I then decided uh, I needed some animal time in my life so I started talking to my boss Steve and I'm like I'm gonna get a dog and he laughs and he says you get a dog I'll fire you and I was like, ah, oh, fair enough, I can't really have a dog. This, I'm here all the time. We go out on river, am I gonna take the dog? And then I can't take care of my group because I'm worried about my dog or, I'm, or my dog gets hurt or something and then I have to leave the group behind. So I, he's right, it makes sense for me not to have a dog. Um, so I started looking at other ways that I can get involved with animals. And they've experimented with animals there in the past. And I, they have this beautiful property up there. And I said, look, if we could turn this place into like a sanctuary, like absolutely stunning place. We could have animals come in we can take care of them. And they were starting, they were toying with the idea. And then um, they said the problem was that you can't have all of these things because people are too transient there. And I said, give me the animal program. I said, I'll run the whole program. Uh, we can do like like, light farming and that type of stuff. Talking about these animals. We can use it in a science program. We can do biology and anatomy and that type of stuff. And he said, okay, give me three years. That's what he was saying. And I was like, perfect. That's totally fine. I can give you three years. So then I started again looking for other ways to be involved with animals. And the only thing around there is vet clinics. So I started volunteering at a vet clinic. And it was this tiny little one veterinarian clinic. She does surgeries one day a week. Um, beautiful little place, awesome vet. And she had no issue with me just shadowing her, following her around. And one day I was at an appointment with her and uh, she's talking to the client and I'm just standing there interacting a bit with the pet and listening to what she's doing and and she just starts explaining to me well, what's wrong with the cat type deal. And she said, Well if, if you were my student this is what I would have you do or this is what I would ask you about. And I thought in my mind like that's so strange. I'm a teacher. I'm I'm not a vet. And then I was driving home and I'm at home and I was like, holy shit, I could be a vet.
0: <laughs> another, another mind blowing yeah. kind of. Yeah. So then someone I, else who kind of showed you in that it's, it's, little yeah. bit more of the closet.
1: That's exactly it, right? And that's for me, I feel like that's all it's been. It's just been someone helping me always without even realizing it, just pointing me in a direction that it's there and I've never thought to look at it. And I went into work the next day and I said, I'm leaving. And my boss hit the ceiling. He's like, "What do you What do you mean you're leaving?" He's like, "You can have all the dogs you want." And I laughed and I said, "You told me I couldn't have any dogs." But then he said, "No, you've proven yourself to be worth like worth it. We'll We'll help you with dogs. We want you to stay. Type deal." And I said, "I I love it here. I do, but it's just something's missing. I just need more, something more." So I told them that that was it. I would be finished at the end of the next. I gave them two more seasons. I said, this will give you enough time. I'll finish out this one I'm currently in, and I'll take on the next season as well. But then that's it. I'm I'm done after that. So that was the end of that chapter. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then how soon after that did you say, or did you discover Farm Sanctuary?
1: So Farm Sanctuary, now that's... Uh, That was something that I started looking around and and finding things because I knew then if I wanted to get into vet school that I would need more animal time. I mean, I had seven months guiding dog sled tours so I had dog time. And what I've realized now is a lot of my experience with animals has been outside of the medical um, side of it. Whereas a lot of my colleagues, my peers have countless hours of clinic time. So they've seen animals in that way. I've seen animals in almost every other way. So that's where we have differing skill sets that help us out a lot in that way. But um I said I needed I wanted to get some large animal experience. So I started helping a few people with horses, but horse people are very intense. And I didn't want to get like it's it's hard to get good horse experience.
0: What do you mean horse people are intense?
1: Oh if you, you don't know any horse people. So
0: <laughs> I met people who, who ride and who take lessons and yeah. who I don't think I've ever had any close uh, relationship with anybody who keeps horses yeah. and is, is totally immersed other than, other than maybe a mutual friend of ours, Allison. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so Allison is not a typical horse person, but if you ever talk to her about horses and horse people, you'll see, you can see a bit of a change in Allison. and like, it, not so much that she changes and like, she knows what it's like in that industry. And that industry is just very, so, uh, well, she
0: was a vet too, so she yeah. has she has uh, kind of inside knowledge of the yeah. the whole horse culture too, right? Yeah, I think she has a bit more of a look into it for so sure. So when you say horse people are intense, what do you mean?
1: They're by that? very particular. They're very over the top. They spend a lot of money and then sometimes won't spend any money. They're just very. If you have to like paint extremes of personalities, the horse people rarely fall closer to the middle of the spectrum the horse people i would often put out towards the edge they're more they're more of the intense variety excitable uh type a very particular that type of stuff
0: so there's a certain in it's it's a generalization of course yes of course but in general there's a certain type of personality type that's maybe drawn to that culture i think
1: so and it could also be culture created. Once you get in and get a horse, then that's how the horse world is. So then it changes you a bit. And it's kind of that self-feeding perpetual cycle. But, yeah, horse people can be very intense. And I haven't been around horses. and I love them. They're beautiful. But I don't I don't really have the drive to be a horse vet. So for me, experience with horses wasn't something high on my to-do list. But I wanted to get some large animal experience. Um and I knew for a fact I wouldn't do well in production. That was something I would not be okay with. So I looked at ways of getting farm animal experience. What do you mean production? Uh, like dairies, uh, beef
0: farms, uh, any poultry Okay, so any, any kind of animal environment where the animals are being used to produce a commodity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: So I was then looking at sanctuaries and I came across Farm Sanctuary. And I realized I could get another volunteer program that I could get involved with, get myself a lot of animal exposure time to these breeds that we're using for production, but in a non-production setting.
0: Now, this is the farm sanctuary. Is this the same farm sanctuary that was started by Gene Bauer?
1: That's the same one. Yeah. This, and this was the flagship one. This is the one he started. So that was this one here. That's the one I went to in Watkins Glen, upstate New York. Beautiful area. Very beautiful.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting project because he's been around for a long long time Yeah, I heard that he started out his vegan journey selling uh, vegan hot dogs at Grateful Dead concerts yeah, and, yeah,
1: that's that's his start that's what he started doing and then they were doing for them they were doing um, uh, witnessing and photographing at uh, a slaughterhouse and then they found Hilda Hilda's the one that started it all for them she was alive, she was in a dead pile and Hilda's a cow Hilda was a sheep okay yeah Hilda was a sheep and they found her in a dead pile they just left her so they took Hilda and Hilda became the first then they bought a farm and more and more and now they've got absolutely stunning they are a very good example of what animal especially farm animal sanctuaries should aspire to be they're Mm -hmm. they're beautiful they do fantastic work the animals are very happy it's a great place yeah
0: now and they've also gained a, a much wider exposure with uh through like celebrities supporting and yeah. things like that now yeah too right
1: oh yeah and like tracy and john stewart um, john's a very recent convert to veganism and i actually met them briefly at the farm i was there when they came through and they opened up a, a farm sanctuary in new jersey so they're affiliated with the farm sanctuary name.
0: Right, and John Stewart's wife recently wrote a book too. Yeah, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I haven't I haven't got a chance to pick that one up yet. But yeah, I'm yeah. not
0: sure of the name of that. I'll look that up and yeah. include it include it in the notes. Cool. So uh but yeah. but yeah. So there's a very um there's a growing awareness about farm sanctuary and how did you learn about it?
1: I was searching again, so my search was to try to find um, farm animal experience without production right so I was searching through ways of getting that so I decided the sanctuary would be a good place
0: and did you you had to did you have to apply yes to have an internship there yes
1: so I had already started at that point and we've skipped ahead a little bit but, okay um, I had started at Guelph taking my prerequisite credits okay i there
0: oh so. so you were already at the University of Guelph yes. starting to study in the vet school no, no, not yet.
1: So here we'll bring back a little bit. Okay. So when I decided to leave Boundless and get into veterinary medicine, I had to look at what I had academically. So I was a vice principal um, signing off and helping people get their high students, get their high school credits while I was myself personally taking high school credits because I didn't have the sciences and maths that required that were like required to get into a science program.
0: The things your dad want you on. Yeah, exactly. So he right? he's, he's
1: still <laughs> gloats about that now. And I tell him, I go, look at I mean, you can't be right then for what's now. You yeah. don't get to hold that for eternity. So parents privilege maybe. Yeah. So I was taking those credits uh, online and then um, I got those. And then I applied to an animal bio program at the University of Guelph. And then I started in the off semesters. I didn't start in September. I started in January. And then while taking those university credits, the first year uh, sciences, I then found Farm Sanctuary, and then that summer I went and did three months in Watkins Glen.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. now we're caught up. Now we're there again. Yeah. Nice. So um, you spent the summer there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I spent three and four months of my summer in Watkins Glen.
0: And what would you say during that time was like, had the biggest impact on you?
1: I would say the interactions with um, the animals,
0: because this would have been like the first time you had really kind of any super intense time with animal, like a- animal protection focused vegan. Yes. People, am I correct? Hundred percent. Yeah. So, so what yeah. was that like? That was, it
1: was eye opening. It was really intense. They did a very good job there. They run a program. Um, you have conversations once a month, and you. You can talk to these, you talk to each other as interns and you, bad ideas around and you test them. You get to speak with Jean. Uh, Jean comes in and has a conversation or has it over the phone. You get to speak with Susie Costin, she's fantastic. She's a shelter director, national shelter director. So she, she bumps around all the sanctuaries all over the country and she's, she had a massive impact on me. She's done fantastic work and is just a beautiful human being. Um, then, Just interacting with the staff there as well, talking to them. They've been doing it for a while. How do they feel about this? So for me, it's always been trying to find um, an impact, uh, the best way to impact a certain group of people because everyone's gonna be reached in a different way. And I think I'm poised in a unique position where I can reach a certain group that others wouldn't be able to. Um, Coming from my background as an athlete and a very strong carnivore, switching over helps a lot another big reason why I pursued this veterinary career is that I think having the DVM after my name will allow a lot of credibility to my words. When I speak, I'm a vet, I know animals. So when I say, look, we shouldn't be doing this or we should think about something like this, it has more weight to that. So it allows me
0: to help animals in that way as well. Okay. So, um, when, when you came back from a farm sanctuary, Mm -hmm. um, And at this kind of point, what I, what I kind of want to uh, explore a little bit, yeah, um, and maybe we can get into something we touched on earlier now, is that now that you've had this kind of intense experience with, with animals, with this, I mean, you probably didn't know that there were as many farm sanctuaries before mm-hmm. as when you arrived and you started discovering there's, there's a much bigger world mm-hmm. than you had ever thought. In, in this regard, yeah, am I correct? Yes. Okay. So when when you came back now, is this the, is this the time that you're going to start introducing this to your family?
1: So, um, I guess so. I mean, it's, it was slowly coming, like not intentionally. Yeah.
0: But but like, are are they getting like? Okay. So when you were vegetarian at um, Boundless School, yeah, and then. Um, now you come back because you said that when you were coming back from visiting your parents, yes, eating leftover bacon. Yes. This is kind of like when the, the switch flipped. Yeah. Um, and when during that time did you start to say to your parents, I'm a vegetarian now?
1: So I, from letting them know, that one was immediate. When I got there, I told them and I said, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And they kind of laughed and I'm like, I'm not some like teenager in a phase right now this is not a thing that i'm just gonna be like bored with in a week this so week. that's
0: kind of what they thought of, at, first. at first yeah right.
1: when they first hear it right i mean they're just like all right Aaron, you're a vegetarian and it's like no and i straight up right in that moment told them that this is not a phase thing this is this is now who i am so that was that that's how that started so that, how
0: did that affect your
1: next trip home so okay that's a good question So the next trip home from that, um, my mother was very open to the idea, but um, it would have been about Christmas time, I think. And they were mocking me.
0: And, Perfect time of year to right. have a vegetarian yeah. and a carnivore yeah, family. exactly.
1: Right? So they were mocking me and teasing me and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I forget, they had made a couple comments in a row, and I just got so upset with them. And I just said, look it. You might not agree with it, but these are my reasons. And I sat them all down and I got actually very emotional about it. And I expressed to them why I was doing this and why this was hurtful and why this was frustrating. And then my mother started crying. And then she was she went vegetarian on the spot as well.
0: Really?
1: Which my father was, I'm sure, upset about at the time because now my mother, <laughs> who makes the food, is, is vegetarian, mm-hmm. right? So uh, my mother then started taking it more seriously once I expressed, again, those raw moments that she always asks me for.
0: Okay, so what was it in that in that uh, conversation that you sat them all down mm-hmm. uh, and had with them? What was it that impacted your mother, the deepest that made her make that immediate change? So
1: for me, it was I went with, and my reason
0: is always the sentience of the animals,
1: is I'm not okay with it because of the suffering we're causing to them. That's number one for me. So when I explained that to them and I explained how intelligent they are and how we keep them and how this is all impacting them, that's what got my mother. My mother is for the same reasons. My mother, again, like I said, is a saint and she's just a walking emotion. So when I went with the emotion animals, the emotions of animals, it made sense to her and she could no longer be okay with it either. Mm -hmm. So that got my mother going. My father was more on the lines of when he finally came around to it was after reading the China study. Um, and seeing the health impacts and the health implications so the, of the, that.
0: the China study just for reference? Is the book by T. Colin Campbell uh, yeah. about the the um, study about the impact of mm-hmm. meat on health in in uh, there was this huge study in China, right? Yeah. Um, and just briefly to say that showed that animal protein has a very very high impact mm-hmm. uh, on it on cancer growth
1: yeah and there's there's actually a lot of early simplification on yeah, it, that's exactly it and and the problem is the scientific controversies around it is that Campbell himself has simplified and drawn some data points that might not be as reliable as he makes them seem um, so there's a lot of like heated debate in the science community saying that he's done a lot of bad science there For and I've explained that to my parents I said look this isn't uh, scientific law but this is something that I was reading it opened my eyes to a lot of things Um, and my father reading it again, my father doesn't take that as scientific law. It's not saying that this is the end all be all, but it just shifted his perspective and had him then look at his diet in another way. And for my father, I think a big deal is he wants to be healthy for his grandkids. So for him, that switch made sense because if his diet switching it, um, allows him to be healthier for longer than he, that's why he went. Engineer thinking exactly right. So my mother was the emotion, and my father was the engineer, and and that for me was actually tactical, like Sun Tzu's Art of War. You have to know your opponent and know how you'll get them to convert. So my mother, I knew was going to be the emotions. For me, that's why I went the emotional route with her. For my father, I knew he is much more tactical or much more strategic and database. So I'm just like, look, here, this is this is another option. Consider this type of thing. So,
0: and then what about your siblings?
1: So. Uh, My siblings have started following suit because um, they, and for whatever reasons they choose. But again, seeing, I think as the eldest sibling, I have an impact and some influence that way. Seeing that I'm doing it, I'm I'm doing, I'm living healthy, I'm happy still. And my reasons for doing it, they can't really counter. So when they sit down and think about it, and if those are my reasons and they hold similar beliefs, then they too have started going that way. So All of them? Um, My brother's my brothers are like my brother who lives out West and his wife are almost exclusively vegan in the household. When they go out, sometimes they'll have cheese or if someone makes meat or something, they won't turn it down. Um, my brother, Jason, who's down in Florida right now uh, doing his master's in physio, uh, like sports therapy. He's, I'm pretty sure at least last time we had talked, he was almost fully vegan as well. My brother, Justin living, he's, um, as far as I know, again, fully vegan, except maybe he'll go out and have a couple things as well. My youngest sister, Jacqueline, who lives at home with my parents, um, she works up in the Sioux there, so she lives with them. She's by practice at home, fully vegan. I don't know what she eats outside of the house. And my sister, Stephanie, I don't know where she's at. She's, I think she's a holdout. And I don't know that she's doing it for any other reason besides the fact that she can be very stubborn. But I'm unsure of where she's at right now with her. She may be another rebel in the family. Right? Yeah, hundred oh, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So your mom, you know, she's very emotional. Mm-hmm. Your dad kind of made a very uh analytical um assessment and study of the situation yeah. and saw how it was gonna impact his health. Uh and your siblings, like, um, do they fall within the range of emotion and analytical too?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, did, think. I
0: mean, people people change. Uh, at least the people that I've met who um, there there seems to be a, a, a dichotomy between vegan and whole food plant based mm-hmm. in that whole um, that whole world yeah. where where vegan is looked at as being very extreme or yeah. whole food plant based is like vegan seems to be more environmental, um, animal welfare yeah. and whole food plant based seems to be more, um, uh, also environmental, but more maybe from an economical standpoint and, and also a uh, health. Yeah. Um, so you see like a lot of, uh, uh, the, the doctors in the States who, um, or anywhere who promote that way of eating they promote the health aspect, Yes. even though they may identify with the other ethical aspect. Yeah. Um, so it kind of feels like your your mom was, if, if we looked at it from, from that standpoint, your mom is more like the vegan kind of emotional, ethical part. Your dad is more the health, how does this impact me, kind of makes sense kind of dude. Um, so what about your siblings? I think they're scattered through both of those as well.
1: Um, some of them would fall a bit on uh, the vegan side for the emotions, and then it makes sense for them on the whole food plant-based on the other. And I think you would just say uh, through the, through all of them, you'd have some degree of variation of both. Um, I wouldn't say any of them are really strong on either side of it.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, that, that's very rare to hear that um one person has that huge an impact on their entire family like that and, and so it's an it, it's a testament to how open-minded your family and, is. and that's what i was going
1: to say exactly it's i'm very lucky because so many people struggle when they go home um and then it's like christmas and thanksgiving and stuff like that where it's just a nightmare because they're sitting there with their small little single serve plant meal and everyone's eating turkey and everything around them so it's there's been a lot of pushback from some of my extended family, but I, I don't get it uh, to me. They, apparently my mother catches some, her sisters give her some pushback, but I wish they'd talk to me more about it because they don't. And my mother, my mother gets upset because she can't, she can't speak about it the same way I can because she looks to me for, for guidance on it. I've become her moral or ethical compass on that type of stuff where she says, how about this? And I say, okay, I'm okay with that because of this, and this is why I'm okay with it. And she she likes the fact that she can just turn to me and say, how do we fall on this issue? So that's, it, it's, uh, it's nice
0: for her that way. So what was more, so it, uh, it sounds like your choice to go vegan mm-hmm. was an easier thing for them to accept than your choice to move away from the church. Oh, 100%, yeah, <laughs> yes.
1: They are still not okay with it, and I'm sure they pray for me on a daily basis. Yeah 100% it was easier for them to accept uh as exemplified by their behavior the fact that I've walked away. And to them I think it makes more sense because the veganism is a tangible thing here. It's affecting the world we live in now. Whereas for them uh it's a belief structure beyond them, right? God is there. He transcends human understanding.
0: Right? For for them Christianity is affecting your well-being uh after after death yes exactly so yeah I think that's exactly how it is
1: veganism was easier I don't think I'll ever be okay with the fact that I've walked away from my
0: Catholic upbringing
1: they're still okay with me as a
0: person though <laughs> there's peace there still yeah of course which is which is a good good thing yeah so uh, as far as you, you mentioned that when you were at uh, I, I don't, I forget the timeline. Maybe you can remind me. Sure. Um, you said you were with a, a partner, a romantic partner, while you were at Boundless. Yes. Um, so, not getting into individual relationships, but has your decision to change your relationship to animals affected uh, how you approach your romantic relationships now? Uh, no, uh, it
1: hasn't. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I th- I find it's really, it can be difficult, but the reasons for why I do it make it okay for me to interact with others who don't. And I understand that they don't, but it also opens up a way that we can talk and then um, go down further down that path. My previous partners have converted partially or fully to my diet for the reasons that I give them. I'm, I can be very convincing. And the reasons why I do it are are hard to question. If you hold similar beliefs to me and you care about me enough to be in a relationship, then it's hard to argue with them. So,
0: so now you are in vet school.
1: So now I'm in vet school,
0: yes. And finally, after getting your prerequisites... Yes, after met, getting right? my prerequisites, yeah. Which was a difficult, a difficult journey. It was
1: hard because I was in class with 17 18 19 year olds so not only was i just teaching these students like or their their peers and their colleagues not even a few months before but now i'm in class with them so it was it was difficult socially because i've ostracized myself i've taken myself out placed myself in a very competitive and difficult program and i again have severed all of my social connections i've taken myself away from the net i created and placed myself in a new place so it was so I the social aspect difficult. was
0: more was maybe more difficult than the academic oh 100 yeah
1: yeah the academic was difficult um but not that bad i mean i i was i'm going back with an in like a goal in mind right yeah i needed to get these marks to get into this place you're so. driven smart guy you know what you got to do. Yeah. Priorities are there. Yeah. So the hardest part was the social, not the academic. Yeah. What was the hardest part about the social? Just not having, again, having no circle. Uh, nowhere. like, not being able to relate to people. I mean, so, I, it's so hard to talk to an 18-year-old about anything, right? It's just, we don't relate. We didn't watch the same shows growing up. Um, the world is so different from when I was your age from when I was at your stage when I was in first year university and I often joke about it's like football Aaron and current Aaron if we sat down at a table right now we would not get along he would think I'm some sort of nerd probably want to beat me up and I would just think he's an ignorant brute and need him to chill out and take some years in the wilderness to figure his stuff out so
0: really like listening to you talk like go through the go through the whole time that it's taken from you to go from there to here Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like those two errands, in reality, were so far apart. They're not.
1: I think that's the thing, is they have, they have the same core the whole way through. But the way that they accepted that idea and how to look at it, because football errand was valuing very different things. It was social. It was sports. It was just kind of enjoying life. And now this errand is still enjoying life, but it's more like, Seeing it as an, I have a greater purpose there's more responsibility. get over yourself, stop
0: drinking all the time, get it together type deal so now moving forward um in my in my discussion with allison um and for for listeners, that's the first interview mm-hmm. that I did in this series of podcasts but um Allison talked a lot about compassion fatigue mm-hmm. in uh being a vet so Being a vegan, Mm -hmm. it might not seem like the first choice uh, to become a vet simply because of compassion fatigue and maybe some of the hard choices that you're going to have to make as a vet. So moving forward, how do you see your role in veterinary medicine? Yeah, that's that's a really
1: neat topic we can get into now. So for me, and I, I know there's some vegans who will boo and hiss at me for this, but I have very different... Uh, perspectives on certain things. My Again, my reason for it is sentience. So my biggest thing for it is not, the biggest harm we do is not the ending of a life. If done correctly, the ending of a life can be a, a great blessing. Um, death is not the worst thing you can do to an animal. Letting it suffer for an extended period of time is the worst thing you can do to an animal. Allowing something to suffer is hard. So I think that's going to help me a lot. In compassion fatigue in that area, especially again, as I said, I was a gravedigger for a while and that shifted my perspective on death because for five years I put a lot of people in the ground and you don't just do that every day mindlessly. You have to reflect on that and it, it really is as we were saying before this interview started, we're talking about the fragile nature of the human condition. We are all fragile. Death comes for all living things. So death is not. I don't see death as a negative thing. Death is not inherently negative. Death is just, it's just the end of one phase, depending on what you believe, whether there's reincarnation
0: or not. Death is just, it's just the end. So, coming back to the question then, how do you see your role in veterinary medicine in the future? Yeah, I
1: see myself as doing the best I can to alleviate the suffering of as many animals as possible. So, again, coming
0: back to that more Buddhist philosophy of Mm -hmm. alleviating suffering. That's
1: exactly it. It is, for me, it's going to be. Take as much suffering
0: out of the equation as possible
1: and helping educate people along the way, because I do believe that education is the way as again, coming back to my teaching and and everything is the best way to change something is to help them remove ignorance. Someone might not realize that their dog is in abject pain and keeping them around for another week because you like seeing them maybe emotionally good for you, but is absolutely devastating for that animal especially because dogs can't conceive the world the same way we do. The dog wakes up it's or a cat or whatever pet it is, wakes up in pain, goes to bed in pain. Its entire world has become pain.
0: It's present so, in its moment every exactly every day. It. That's exactly it.
1: So that'll be my, my biggest thing will be to, I, I want to try to close the gap even further between humans and animals. I want to get us, to a point of better understanding. So as much of that gap as I can help us bridge, that's what I'm going to try to do.
0: So do you see your role in, in private practice or, or or like what role do you see yourself playing um, as a vet?
1: Yeah, I do. that's a great question and I don't know yet. I need to look more at it and see more of what veterinarians can do because there's so many things you can do with a vet degree. Once you have the DVM, there's so many paths that are open to you. And I don't know yet which path is going to be the one I take. And I'm sure, again, as I've done always, is just walk kind of a meandering path until I find something that fits. And it will be the way that I can impact the most change. And it's hard because if you look at the way I could alleviate the most suffering would be to get involved in food animal production just because of the sheer numbers. If I even make uh, like a millimeter of change, if you multiply that out over all Of The animals and beings in that system. It's a massive change But working in production would be very difficult for me and compassion fatigue would come often and it'd be repetitive I would need a lot of time to recover because um, Those systems are very very grating. We even just went on some field trips this week and To some facilities and they were very hard for me to see even though I knew I knew what they were doing and these facilities weren't bad
0: Was it difficult for the other students in the program? It it? It actually
1: was. I think a lot of people struggled with it. A lot of them have never seen them. They don't know what these facilities are like. And these facilities are are good facilities as far as anyone is concerned. Like They're they're good enough for them to be comfortable taking an entire class of veterinary students through to see them. So if these are systems that they're proud of and they're showing us, then the systems that are not functioning the same way are also going to be much, much harder to deal with
0: so it's very interesting have you ever read the book uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hess
1: no I haven't I,
0: I read that when I was in in high school yeah so um, I was really different from everybody I was growing up with too. the music I was listening to both reading. yeah, yeah. so um, I kind of relate relate to what you're talking about on, on those levels but your journey kind of reminds me of that book mm. um, it also reminds me of you know Forty days and forty nights in the desert, and you know, coming out and and kind of making this transformation. Mm. Uh, so it's very interesting your 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 attraction uh, and your identity. I, I don't know if I should say identification, but your um, realization that uh, Buddhism fits well with your life philosophy, mm. um, and how it's been interwoven in everything that you've done. And you're like you said, you're kind of walking a. Uh, meandering path. If you have a chance, read *Siddhartha*. Thank All you, right, I, I get my hands on it. Uh, I think it it'll really um, you'll you'll find some similarities there with your own life. But um, but that being said, moving forward now, um, outside of being a vet and outside of uh, the way you eat, um, how do you think? Uh, this has impacted you um, emotionally and mentally.
1: Do you mean like going vegan or just like in general, the entire?
0: um... I mean, because you you see, um, I've often said to people that I think that the next evolutionary jump in in, with with humans Mm -hmm. has to be compassion. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have, in order to survive as a species, (laughs) we need to uh, become way more compassionate with each other with the world around us um, so you seem to be making that 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 uh, that jump mm-hmm. within your own lifetime so do, do you see that
1: yes i it's actually funny we just had we're having a lecture on ethics and someone was saying which value do you hold the most dear or most important in my Answer is because the class no one wanted to say what they held they were nervous so I just said I'm mine's compassion and this is why and almost exactly that it's like we need to break down these barriers between us and see that there really is no other there is no difference between another human or another sentient being out there there is there's violence in the world and as long as we see an enemy or another we can allow the violence to continue but as soon as we stop seeing that divide, then the violence will no longer be acceptable.
0: So. So. Then the question for me is, um, if you wanted to, if you were to speaking to someone who is searching for a deeper meaning in their life to become more authentic, because I, you know, I think when we identify with our compassionate nature, because it's a part of our nature. Yeah. Um, it is becoming more authentic and and kind of more true to that part of us so if someone wants to um, explore that part of them more and and become more in tune with that nature mm-hmm. how would you recommend doing that
1: I think the the most important thing is to listen to that that voice inside of your head that it's always there even if you've pushed it down it'll still be this quiet little voice and Every chance you get to have an interaction with something, there is a chance for you to feed the right wolf. And it's to feed that compassionate wolf. And every interaction throughout your entire day has that chance. So if you at all have that voice that's saying to you, show compassion here, do this, then, then do it. And if you've, if you've done something and you think about it later and it feels bad and you've, you feel like you regret it or you wish you did something different, then go back and change it.
0: And for a lot of people, it's very, very difficult to um, listen to that voice when they are when they are in a family yes. who has very, very different yes. viewpoints than them. Yeah. Right, and who may be criticizing their decision to change, or um, or questioning. I mean, and this could be anybody. This could be somebody who has, you know uh, been in the closet for a long time. Yeah. I mean, speaking of closets, yeah. Uh, and yeah. who, who is now exploring their true sexuality or somebody who's changing the way they eat or somebody who's changing, um, the type of, uh, religious beliefs that they hold, uh, or spiritual beliefs. Um, and, and their change is challenging everything that they were brought up with. Yeah. Right. So in that, do you have any helpful, um, Helpful viewpoints or helpful experiences that uh, could encourage somebody who's make you know wants to make a change in that regard.
1: I think, and some people might scoff at it to hear it, but I think the hardest thing to do is to be brave. I mean, you're given a chance when you walk into something and you feel fear pushing back against you. The best thing sometimes to do is to just just fall into the fear, because the fear doesn't last that long. And then, for me, anyways, I can speak to is falling through the fear. You come to A better place you land in a place where it's more it's more true to who you are. It's it's that space where you're more comfortable and the people around you who matter and who love you will follow you through that fear and they'll be there at the end and you'll have a tighter more supportive network and those that don't follow you through are doing you the favor of pruning themselves. They're not ready yet and it's hard but sometimes you have to lose people who aren't ready. You can never force anyone to learn something they're not ready to learn. The old adage of you can lead a horse to water is a really important one for this journey because once you've awoken to something and seen it to be true and realized that's who you are, you can't force that consciousness on someone else. You can just live it and hope they see you doing it. That's the only option, that's the only non-violent option left to us. Otherwise, we just become... Someone standing on a soapbox railing and spreading violence while we should be spreading compassion.
0: I think that's uh that's a really good spot to kind of wind up. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel that you're living what you believe.
1: I'm trying, yeah.
0: I mean I'm sure we I mean everybody slips up now and then loses yeah. their temper. Yeah you know gets angry in traffic or whatever yes (laughs) but um but yeah it sounds like you're you're really impacting the people around you you're having an impact on the world uh and uh and in all the right ways Mm. so it's really encouraging to to see that
1: well thank you i'm trying like i said we all all we can make is our little ripples and we never know who those ripples are going to reach
0: Thank you so much for sharing all this stuff. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This has been a really great conversation. Yeah. I enjoyed this as well. And uh, good tea too. Yeah. It's very good tea. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. It would really help me a lot if you would go to Apple podcasts and leave a review or rating. If you've already done so, I can't express my gratitude enough. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or just want to share something you gleaned from it, I'd love you to submit them through the contact page on my website, www.unlewis.com. Also, if you want to be the first to know a new episode has been uploaded, sign up for notifications by submitting your email address. Thanks again and good luck on making your right turn.